0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, a presentation of National Review. Check us out on Twitter at political underscore beats. And we ask you to subscribe to our feed. to get new episodes when they're available through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, or go to nationalreview.com. Click on the podcast tab. You'll find us there along with other fine NR podcasts. Listen, enjoy, share, and leave reviews of Political Beats. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner standing by, as always, Jeff Blair. Jeff, how are you?
1: I'm sorry, Scott. It's a, it's a bit chaotic here in the studio. I I, I tripped. Uh, I twisted my ankle. I, I knocked over the marimbas, and uh, unfortunately, <laughs> I think I snapped a couple of strings on my sitar.
0: Other than that, though, things are good.
1: Uh, uh, well, no, actually, because uh, apparently you're sleeping with my girlfriend. <laughs>
0: well, so is it someone else in the band, so, I mean...
1: Yeah, well, that, that's the way it goes in the Britain. We'll in, work through it. In the it. 1960s, yes.
0: Uh, find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. And we welcome our guest for today's program. You can uh, find his work at The Daily Wire, where he's a contributor. You can find him on Twitter at Harry1T6. And his website, you can find a whole bunch of stuff, Harry Kachatrian. And that's his name. It's harrykachatrian.com. Harry, how are you? I'm good, Scott. Thank you.
2: Appreciate- By
1: the way, I want to celebrate the first foreigner I yes. think we've ever had on okay. political beats uh, you know, from, from the, the, the great white north of Canada. So uh, congratulations on, on being the, the, the first uh, outsider we've ever allowed on the show, Harry. <laughs>
2: Thank you, Jeff. I, I feel like this is a lot of pressure. I'm representing all of Canada right now. <laughs> well,
0: you do a good job. <laughs> and the only way we top this now is to have an actual member of Foreigner. On the show, in addition to uh, so, Mick, Mick, uh, Mick Jones or Lou Graham uh, were available. Don't let us tell
1: know. Don't be me, you know, are you me? Ian
0: McDonald, King Crimson. Yeah, come on. yeah, yeah, true. Oh, yeah, you do. Um, Harry, we uh, we open the floor to you as we start the episode to tell people about what you do uh, and how you kind of got involved in uh, in political beats and, and, and you know why you're a guest here now.
2: Sure. Um, so I, uh, not professionally, more of a, a hobby thing I do on the side. I, I write columns for, for Ben Shapiro's website, The Daily Wire. And the way I got started doing that uh, was probably about six years ago now, um, I was I kind of started getting interested in politics. I've always been interested, but I got more interested in the hands-on approach. And so um, a friend of mine from high school, he started a blog about six years ago. It was sort of finance-related, and he kind of knew I liked to write, so he asked me to if I can write for him. Um, And that's how I got started. And then from there, um, I kind of discovered these, uh, these like early Ben Shapiro debate videos on YouTube. Um, And I found, I quickly became a fan of his, um, and I started watching all of his videos. And then once I kind of discovered what political Twitter was, uh, this is, I guess, in its earlier days, I kind of got on Twitter, and I found his Twitter account. And one day he he, for some reason he tweeted out his email address uh, and so I frantically screenshotted it <laughs> and uh, when I heard he was launching a website um, the Daily Wire I thought what the hell why don't I I'll just pitch him something I wrote um, and we'll see what happens so I just sent him an article I had this was like before any prior interaction and it turned out that he either he liked it or he was desperate for content at the time one of those two but uh, either way he ended up publishing it and it kind of it kind of went on from there. I kept sending him articles. Uh, he would give me feedback. He'd tell me, you know, maybe what to write. Um, and I started off doing political commentary, whether it was either U.S. politics or Canadian issues. Um, and then from there, I also got kind of got interested in writing about movies, film reviews, um, and uh, even music. I think the, one of the more recent things I did was I wrote about uh, Bruce Springsteen's born in the USA on the 35th anniversary. So, so that's how I got started and professionally I'm an I'm engineering, but it's, uh, it's a fun hobby that I've, I've been doing for a while
0: now and we uh, bring you on to discuss uh, the for the first of two parts uh, there's no reason to do a, a long introduction here it's it 's the Rolling Stones people for goodness sake uh, they're on tour this summer they've been around for 57 years uh, I've seen them live once. I'm very proud of that. Just happened a few weeks ago. Jeff, meanwhile, has never seen them live, as we find out talking before the episode began. Harry's seen them live once, um, so you know we're massive fans. But between the three of us, or among the three of us, just two live shows for us. Uh, Harry, we open the floor to you to explain to us why you love the Rolling Stones, how you got into them, and you can probably skip why people should care about them. I think that's really you know, patently obvious. So those first two questions, at least. Okay.
2: Um, so to kick things off, how I got into the Rolling Stones, um, from what I recall, I was about 12 years old at the time, and, uh, I was already way into classic rock. Uh, I first fell in love with the Beatles, and then after consuming their discography, I just went down the rabbit hole, uh, of 60s and 70s rock and roll. It was uh, Zeppelin, Bowie, and, of course, the Rolling Stones. And I remember when I got my very first Stone CD, uh, it was probably about 14, 15 years ago now. Uh, my mom, she used to take me to the public library a lot. And one day, wandering past the, the rows of books, I found a whole new section, uh, CDs. Uh, and to put it into context, this is way before, not way before, but this is, this is before Spotify, <laughs> YouTube. Uh, this is still in the era of physical music. So um, around that time, being curious about The Stones, uh, I walked out with two discs. Uh, one of them was The Stones' very latest album, uh, A Bigger Bang, uh, and the other one, it was a, a compilation. It was called The Singles Collection, The London Years, a three CD compilation.
1: One of the greatest compilations ever made, by the way, so uh,
2: yeah. just have to say that. And uh, so, so the first thing I, I remember putting into my CD player, uh, it was The Bigger Bang. Uh, and at the time, I didn't know it was a new album. I just you know, I saw The Rolling Stones, and I wanted to listen to it. So, um, and from the first few tracks, right off that latest album, uh, it was Rough Justice. Uh, and then I remember Rainfall Down. Uh, I was immediately hooked. Uh, and I, I didn't even know that this album was br- little more than a footnote in their legendary discography, but I just fell in love with it. Uh, Keith Richards' bluesy riffs, uh, Bowen with Ronnie Woods, uh, Charlie w- Watts' tight rhythm over, uh, at that time, Daryl Jones's bass, um, and Mick Jagger's distinctive voice. I'd never heard anything like that, just tearing through the speakers. Uh, And just the sum of all those parts together was just magical. Uh, And then after that, I went through, as Jeff said, one of the greatest compilations, their singles collection, three CDs of of singles of the Rolling Stones, all um, covering the entire, I think, the entire Brian Jones era, uh, which we'll spend the rest of this show dissecting and disseminating uh, for listeners. So that's how I got into the Rolling Stones. And um, I guess to answer the second part, why should anyone care? Um, I guess I'll give a quick pitch for that. So to me, the Rolling Stones are the original rock band, uh, also known as the group that Martin Scorsese makes music videos for, (laughs) like Goodfellas or Mean Streets. (laughs) Um, They're the pioneers of the the stereotypical uh, ensemble we call the rock band. Uh, Sure, in the 60s, there were other bands. The Stones had plenty of peers like the Beatles, the Kinks, uh, the Who. Uh, But to me, the the Rolling Stones, to me, are the, the architects of that rock star image. They were these dangerous kids from London. Um, you know, whereas the Beatles, they were these kind of clean, scandal-free boys from Liverpool. Uh, you know, largely, again, thanks to, I'm sure we'll talk more about Andrew Longham, he, he created this image for them where they were these nitty-gritty bad boys that, you know, the parents just hated, the establishment hated them. They were this giant middle finger. And it wasn't just their image that conveyed this, it was their music, the sound they put out. Uh, they were this melting pot of jazz and rhythm and blues and rock and roll. Uh, and even way before their first gig or even the band form, uh, the band members like Brian Jones and, and Jagger and Richard, they would spent years and years just meticulously listening to all the American blues artists and, and rock and roll like Elvis, uh, Chuck Berry, Jimmy Reed, Muddy Waters. Um, uh, as it'll be mentioned later, I'm sure Muddy Waters is how they even got the name of their band. It was a Muddy Waters song. Um, and, Again, this was the 1950s when they were doing this, so you couldn't just go on Google and look up how to play Heartbreak Hotel by Elvis Presley, right? They had to, <laughs> they sat in front of record players for hours and learned every note and, you know, learned how to recreate and recreate that kind of music. So they weren't just, they didn't just have a unique sound, they were expert instrumentalists. Uh, and then aside from that, there was just the band's longevity. Uh, they've survived everything with little change to the original lineup commanding a career that pushes almost six decades now. Uh, they've inspired and influenced legions of stars, from Steven Tyler to Lenny Kravitz, among many others. And their lasting influence will be around long after they've played the last concert. And just one more point to add to what, uh, what Scott was saying, I I fortunately did get to see them live a few weeks ago when they played in Ontario. and. It was a wonderful show. I, there was—I know—they're in their 70s now, and Mick Jagger just had heart surgery. <laughs> <laughs> like he had like four valves replaced. And he's still killing it on stage. It, it was, it, but I will say the the energy they put out, the energy they just exude—there was almost no way to tell that they were 70 years old. Yep. Uh, it was it was really incredible what they were able to do. Um, so you know, to wrap it up, anyone who's mildly interested in rock and roll. Uh, they really owe it to themselves to dive into this band's treasure trove of a discography and enjoy every record they've put out, all the way from their debut album of blues covers until their very latest album, Blue and Lonesome, w- which is also an album of blues a covers. blues
1: covers. Come full circle. Yeah. Hey, Scott, you want to go before me? Go you know, for it.
0: You know, it's, it's, it's hard to pinpoint uh, the time when the Rolling Stones entered my life, right? Because for us they 've always been around they 've always been around and they 've been on every possible radio station from the uh, from the oldies radio station to the uh, to the classic rock radio station to the uh, you know the, the, the adult album alternative radio station to the to the new rock radio station, even at times when they 've got actual new material to to, to put out they 're just omnipresent um, from 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 the time you could remember music that that, that satisfaction riff drilled into your head in a number of different ways. Um, and they're just, there's a magic to this band, um, going back to the to the very beginning and, and the Jagger-Richards partnership, with Brian Jones brought early on, that, that tight, tight rhythm section, Charlie Watts and Bill Wyman early on. Charlie is such an integral part of this band, even though, as we might get into at some point during these two episodes, you know, his personality is so... So different from everybody else in the Rolling Stones. Sometimes somehow he survives back there. Uh, probably wishing he were playing jazz at some small club in London as opposed to being on the big stage. But he just he drives everything. And um, you know the first I think the first Stones album that I purchased might have been Voodoo Lounge. Right when Voodoo Lounge came out, um, certainly it was the first album of new Stones material that I that I bought. And then going backwards, it, and, and prepping for this episode, where, as Harry said, we go through the, the essentially the Brian Jones years. We'll, we'll we'll conclude with "Let It Bleed." It's essentially their '60s output, right? Um, and it's not that you forget these songs um, because again they're everywhere. But when you put them together in a, in a pile of notes, you know, as I have prepared for for our conversation today, it is. Absolutely incredible the amount of fantastic material that was released before, uh, even before Let It Bleed. And then you you have this stretch of perhaps the best, you know, the best four-year, five-year stretch in music history. The rest of the '70s, which, as we'll get into in part two, is incredibly interesting and I think rewarding, and that's not even to say of, of things post uh, Tattoo, you of eighty, you know, post nineteen eighty one. It's just a, a an amazing palette in which they've been able to to work, covering you know, country and R and B and blues, and electric blues and acoustic blues uh Keith Richards being the 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 incredible rhythm guitar player he is and the creator of so many iconic riffs through the years and the different styles that they played through Brian Jones through through the, the Mick Taylor and and um and Keith era uh Ron, Ron Wood coming aboard a new bassist toward the early 90s uh they've just been everywhere and virtually every corner of their discography is rewarding uh to explore and to and to find these songs that still uh, and we'll get to some today i think that are still uncovered um, mainly, well, at least in large part, because of the the differences between the UK and the US uh, releases uh, yeah. in in the '60s, which makes it very hard, and I think leads to leads some people to say, you know, forget this, just give me Hot Rocks, which is okay. I mean, Hot Rocks is a fine collection, but you go back to the actual albums from this era, and I think there are still some un um, not undiscovered, but but you know, uh, unknown or lesser known gems. On these albums, it's an intensely rewarding category from what is 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 the best rock and roll band of all time.
1: Listen, I'm not going to give you guys my whole how did I get into the Rolling Stones uh, tale because it's pedestrian and it's, it's probably the same as most human beings. How did I first become aware of the Rolling Stones? I first became of the, aware of the Rolling Stones when my brain was capable of you know, <laughs> holding on to memories because like once like sonic input came in through my ears, then that's when you're going to hear I can't get no satisfaction. That's when you're going to hear painted black. Or, uh, you know, give me shelter. You can't always get what you want. Get off of my cloud. And if I fucking name a hundred stone singles, that part doesn't even matter. By the way, my first CD, yeah, I'm no shame in admitting this. It was hot rocks. yeah, i got I got the <laughs> compilation to start because you know what? It's their greatest selling album that 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 that's a bigger seller than some girls. It's a bigger seller than anything else they've ever put out in their career. And uh, yeah, I, I have no embarrassment about saying to you that I started with the Stones with a compilation. That's not important. What's important is this that the second half of this show, We're going to go through the Stones' latter phase of their career, and we're going to tell you about basically, ultimately, who they are currently. But what excites me so much, and in fact, something that I almost have a a sort of quasi-religious passion about, is telling you people about who the Stones were, and how they started and what the first decade of their career is like uh we, we are so accustomed to celebrating albums like sticky fingers and exile on main street some girls uh and you know and we understand that the band that you see on the road today it's the ron wood era uh maybe if you're older than me then you would maybe have seen mick taylor back in the glory days of the early 70s um but people forget about what I think is uh, just absolutely critically important era of the stones' career, and that is the Brian Jones era that is the first decade of their career. This is not some sort of footnote. I mean that people often as Scott just said, like you know, because of the weird discographical difficulties, people will treat this as uh, you know there are some hit singles and there are a couple of good album tracks, get them on the compilations, and I stand up and I scream to you, no. Know, <laughs> no, 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 no. I will get frothy about this because the Stones were great from the start. They have incredible albums, some of which you still cannot purchase on CD because the world is cruel and unfair and Alan Klein's uh, company wants to milk <laughs> as much money out of you as they can. But this band was great from the beginning and the thing that you first need to understand about the Stones is this, and because this is going to govern so much of the weird interpersonal band dynamic dynamics uh for the next several years of their career is that this was a not a mick jagger and keith richards band originally this band was started by a guy named brian jones brian jones (coughs) weird dude a lot of demons not a nice person um but what he did love absolutely to the core of his being was the blues
3: Won't you be no slave?
1: Was incredibly good at playing blues guitar, and particularly, he was a huge fan of bottleneck slide, uh, sort of Elmore James, Muddy Waters kind of stuff. And uh, he uh, went and he found some other people who were playing on the scene. First, he found Mick Jagger. They started playing, and then Mick Jagger ran into a guy named Keith Richards on a train platform somewhere in London, and they all got together. They they uh, they found Charlie and Bill charlie watts bill wyman um their their rhythm section playing in other groups and had to sort of kind of convince them over time to join charlie of course as as scott pointed out would rather be playing in a jazz band uh but they they got this all together and and the original purpose of this group and this is a group that was formed before andrew luke oldham ever met them this was a group that was formed with a purpose and that explicit purpose was to evangelize for the blues uh, again it, we live in a globalized world we live in an internet world everything is available at the touch of your fingertips um you know as 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 harry said you know if you wanted to learn how to play heartbreak hotel or you wanted to learn how to play uh you know a motown hit, hit single or something from the chess you know the, the chess catalog you, you couldn't go look it up Online, you, know, you had to go buy the record, sitting you know on your bed with your with your your cheap little record player, and just you know keep hit you know raising the tone arm you know <laughs> after they play the riff and then you try to do it and then you listen to it again and play it again and again. These are the kinds of kids in Great Britain, not in America, where there's a you know, obviously an African American and a blues tradition. You can learn from people who have already learned this. These were kids who were just you know growing up in the suburbs go into art school or, you know, you know, just or, you know, dropouts or whatever that wanted to play this music. That's where the Stones came out of. They loved this music. They thought it was so much more real to them than any of the crap that they heard on you know the radio and the BBC government radio. Remember, this isn't like America where there's like you know you know thousands of FM stations or not even FM AM stations back then, playing you know different things depending on where you are in the country. This is there's one channel and this is gonna play what's approved. So the Stones were you know part of that sort of early youth rebellion movement that even the Beatles themselves came out of uh, in a very different way. And when you have to look at what the early stones were for the first, first three albums, really. So the Rolling, I'm going to go by the United Kingdom discography, because I really do feel like it's the official one. There's the Rolling Stones, Rolling Stones number two, and then there's out of our heads, out of our heads means something different to people in America, unfortunately, than it does in England. But those first three albums are all about blues, soul, r&b this is the music that people in england didn't hear because they didn't get all that music uh that was playing on radio stations in like detroit and new york city and in atlanta you know and you know all throughout the country in the united states this is this stuff was like weird rarities the rolling stones cover a song like hitchhike by marvin gay because nobody in england had even heard of hitchhike <laughs> You know, this this was not a hit single there. Motown had a couple of songs that were big, but, but no, it, it, they had their own independent culture. And what the Rolling Stones wanted to do was bring this music to the masses. And it's from that point that they then exploded into... The- this massive pop presence into the greatest live rock and roll band in the world Uh, and into the the Rolling Stones who are today. This is the only band, this band, you remember you talking about how they're all pushing 70 or over 70 years old. Uh, They're the all still the only band rock band that can sell out a stadium full of 75,000 people. They'll get 75,000 people to come see the Rolling Stones, even though they're all pushing that because even young people want to like see the spectacle. So that's where you begin with the Rolling Stones and I guess what you do is you begin with the fact that they you know they were English club giggers they were they were playing on the London scene in this sort of a you know, very small club blues based area R&B stuff and uh, they had you know uh, you know been putting out some you know pretty hot shows. And what do they do? Well, they finally decided to sign with a record label. And uh, they, they found a guy, a canny guy, who I guess I'll talk about a little bit later, named Andrew Luke Oldham, a, a, a disc jobber from the record labels who was uh, um, really, really sharp when it came to publicity, and who got them a record deal with DECA, which was uh, a label that was reeling from their failure. <laughs> their their comical failure to sign the greatest rock band of all time, the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they turned them down. The Beatles, of course, went to EMI and Parlophone. And so what the st- what what does what could do? Well, they signed the Rolling Stones. Oldham got them a pretty good deal, actually. And uh, what do they do? The the first few releases of theirs are. Uh, a pretty canny mix of uh, both you know, old blues-based stuff and Chuck Berry songs. So you have their first single. is a song called Come On. This is a uh a chuck berry song that uh is not one of his big famous hits um and which was uh, an intentional choice i believe on the part of the stones they didn't want to go with something really really famous they weren't going to go do johnny b good or memphis tennessee or something like that now they do come on it's pretty poppy little lumber uh and it's adequate and it, i guess it's noteworthy for me because it's it you know, obviously the place where the big bad Rolling Stones began, uh, but also because it's, it's really fun to hear them in their awkward youth.
3: Everything is wrong dear. I've been without you every night I lay awake, thinking about you every time the phone breaks. Sounds like thunder, some stupid guy trying to reach another number. Come on, since I've been without you, come on, always thinking about you, come on bone sounds like thunder some stupid guy trying to reach another number <laughs>
1: I don't know what you guys think about this, or about like Poison Ivy, that first Rolling Stones EP, or about a, a single that I really do want to spend a little more time on. This is all the early Stones sort of prehistory era, their first big hit, which is, ironically enough, a Beatles cover called I Want to Be Your Man.
2: So Jeff, one thing, uh, before I get into that, I just wanted to add one quick little point where you were saying about how they're still able to sell out stadiums of, of tens of thousands of people. Um, and just just wanted to add that these are not like cheap tickets; these are premium, premium priced. Um, like the we're talking like cheapest, you know, two hundred dollars to see the, these seventy year old people, and they're still and they are selling them out. So it it really is incredible uh, what they've managed to hold on to. So as far as uh, the single goes, uh, one of my absolute favorites uh, from this early era of of singles. Uh, it also appears on their debut <laughs> album. It's a song called. Uh, and I believe this is—it's—it's it's an original uh, composition called "Little by Little." It's credited to. Yeah, it's
1: semi-original. It's
2: Michael kind of—it's
1: it's pretty much a rip-off, though, okay. of like an old blues song. But yeah, Fair it right. is good. Now I know what you're talking. It's "Be Set and Not Fade Away."
2: Yeah. Yeah, and it's um, just just the way uh, you know Mick Jagger. He he rolls off these little by little. I. Um, it's, it's just beautiful. I just, cause I, you know, very much remember this being one of the first things I heard off the, the three CD compilation. Um, and there was this interplay between the guitars and the interplay between the harmonica that the blues harp and, and the guitars and the rhythm. And it, it all kind of comes together beautifully. And you can really see the, the sort of the, the seeds of the Rolling Stones or, you know, w- you know, what they would, would go on to do. And it's, it's just this beautiful, you know, Amazing group of guitarists and, and musicians just jamming together and and uh, very naturally kind of putting out this this amazing um, you know rhythm section and, and vocals and everything.
0: Yeah, these first you set on the table essentially for the uh, the debut LP, which is uh, is 1964 in the UK. You've got uh, "Not Fade Away," which was released as a, a single um, in the UK before the album. Um, which
1: uh, and it's not on the album. It's correct. on the album in America. If you go buy the CD, and this is why this the whole UK US thing gets <laughs> so annoying. "Not <laughs> Fade Away" was not it was a non album single in the United Kingdom and it's not on their debut album but if you go by England's newest hit makers you're going to find it there and hey no problem with that because it's a fantastic song right. sorry to interrupt I'm no
0: just... but you know you're going to find you know songs on on the uh, on the EP you know there's a Chuck Berry cover there's a uh, Barry Gordy they do money um there's a Liber and Stoller cover and Poison Ivy and <laughs> all done you know relatively relatively well um leading up to that that first album um which again in the u.s is English, england's newest hit makers but in the uk is just titled the rolling stones and uh, this is uh, essentially a, a full album of of covers um uh, except for one called tell me that nick and keith write and um and then the, the one that um that uh, harry mentioned little by little which is which is original but but not Really, as Jeff sort of explained, um, so I mean, this is this is this is the blues, right? I mean, this is where they this is where they begin uh, finding these songs that they loved uh, that, that Mick and Keith maybe talked about that first day they met uh, at the at the at the train station. And bring them to a to a wider audience. Um, and, and there are songs on here that you'll you'll know, right? I mean, Route 66 is a fairly well known song that many many people have covered. I just want to make love to you. Yes, is the same song that Foghat would then later cover in the seventies <laughs> and have a, a moderate hit out of. Um, there's a, a great song called uh, later on the album called Walking the Dog, which uh, which is a fun kind of light light song uh, on the album. Um, I'm a King B features Brian Jones on slide guitar, which uh, he he was really talented at. Um, And and Keith's guitar on I'm a King B sort of buzzes around. uh, The the strings vibrate. Um, One thing we should mention from the start here. Is that none of these beginning albums are what you would call extremely well produced? Uh, <laughs> Andrew Oldham is is there as a quote unquote producer, but it's largely there to record, uh, to make sure things are on tape, and to loosely organize the proceedings.
1: I mean, they literally played, uh, they recorded that first album and all those early singles in, in, in a demo studio called Regent Sound mm-hmm. that that was lined with egg crates, right. you're like you're like egg crates. They put them on the wall to dampen the sound, and they played to like a Single microphone, single microphone, tape, yep. taped to the center of the wall, for for uh, you know crystal clear mono sound. <laughs> So like you're never going to hear the early stones in stereo because it doesn't exist. It wasn't recorded that way. And uh, yeah, if it if was anything other than the recording of a live act, uh, it would be dire. But because they're basically just playing live in the studio with only a very few overdubs, they get away with it. But yeah, this ain't hi-fi.
0: No pretty muddy. Sometimes the the, the the loudest instrument is the one closest to the one microphone. Uh, Bill Wyman's bass is very loud, and on top of other instruments and a lot of tracks here. Ian Stewart should be pointed out, who's a big part of this band's uh, legacy and work over the next, uh, what, 25 years or so, is here from the very first album, uh, you know, the the sixth Rolling Stone. Uh, he plays on, on the Rolling Stone's debut album. Uh, so, you know, as far as the original goes, tell me, um, you know, it's it's a, it's it's not it's not bluesy right it's 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 a folk pop kind of song acoustic based one thing i'll note from the beginning here is that uh, is that mix delivery mix vocals are already very confident um it, he already knows his way around the studio and around a microphone and he can deliver the lines uh, in Tell Me as well as he can in, say, Route 66. He's very talented from the start, and he knows what he's doing. This is uh, primitive blues that would only get much better on, on the second album, but but worth a listen. I tried
3: to tell you But you didn't want to know This time you're different And determined to go
1: I mean, the thing about the early Stones is this, is that you, you have to remember the evolution. I, I like the point you make about Mick Jagger being a confident singer, because here's the other point about Mick Jagger that needs to be made, that he he's not a good singer in any traditional sense of that word, all right? <laughs> uh, Dylan really is the one who cleared the field for this in in a commercial sense, because you know Dylan is obviously not a good singer, but he's a great singer. There's a difference between a good, formal singer, but also... Who cares about that? Uh, if your voice is expressive enough, Mick Jagger can carry a tune. Like he can hit the basic notes. You know, he can do the melodies and things like that. But you know, like nobody would ever accuse him of having like uh, a chorale worthy voice. Mm-hmm. He 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 would not get into all state choir if he were to audition. I think we can understand this. Uh, but that's the point: is that it's it's a new spirit. It's a new aesthetic that's coming into rock. That's coming into popular music, and it's, it, it it even. I I would say that it starts with Mick and it starts with the Stones because... Because Lennon and McCartney and Harrison, they they could harmonize beautifully. Sure. They actually had formally good voices. McCartney, in particular, is just you know he'd be the belle of the ball. Um, uh, mm-hmm. But whereas Mick, Mick is kind of like ugly and bluesy, and yet because he 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 just believes in what he's doing, he gets away with it. Mm-hmm. And the other thing about this, the other story that needs to be understood about the, the you know the Rolling Stones debut album and their early singles is this: is that when they were getting getting big on the London club scene, they ran into to The Beatles, whom they were friendly with, the Beatles, of course, coming down from Liverpool. Now they're in. Now they're in London. Now they're recording. Um, <clears throat> they're in that phase, that early phase of their career, where they're hawking a lot of their other songs, what they what they consider their lesser songs, frankly, to other bands. Just like, hey, you want to record this? Make a number one hit single out of it, if you can. And uh, actually, a lot of that happened. They had a lot of chart success in the United Kingdom, in particular, with some of their lesser stuff, stuff they never even recorded. Mm-hmm but interestingly enough one song that they did give uh literally the story goes they're like riding in the back of a limousine together and lennon and mccartney are just like hey you know we've been working on this because they're recording their second album it's an album called with the beatles uh and this is the song they're going to give to ringo (laughs) that's how (laughs) much you think that's how little they think of it it's the ringo song uh and it's called i want to be your man and they start just playing it and it's awesome and uh, what happens is that, you know, Jagger and Richards look to each other and say, you know, holy shit, you know, like if they can do this in, in the back of a car, half write the song while we're sitting here watching them, that, that we can do this ourselves. And they release that single. That's their second single. And it's their first major hit in the United Kingdom. It goes to number two. Um, and it's... Uh, I'm um, tragically underrepresented in, in their compilations and sort of in their their story, their their discography because I think it absolutely obliterates the original Beatles version. The, the, the Beatles version is okay. Ringo does a decent job with it. But when you hear Brian Jones just playing that sly guitar and then steel guitar and then squawking like an angry parrot in the background as Mick snottily screams, I want to be your lover, baby, I want to be your man. Um, You just realize, okay, you know, the Stones have arrived. This is the Stones, as the Stones would actually always be at their best for the entirety of their career. This is the beginning. line of this is that Andrew Lou Goldham looked at the bank that the Beatles were making yes. off of that song and off of other songs that they were selling to other people and said, "You sons of bitches." I'm gonna make you write your own damn tunes. I know you can do it. This is the greatest thing that he ever did for them. He wasn't a fantastic producer, but you know, in in a in a weird spiritual way, he was the best friend the Rolling Stones ever had during their early years. Because he literally, as the story goes, locked them in a room. Gave him just like a giant jar of like instant coffee, Sanka. So like, you know, drink it, you know, don't fall asleep. You don't get to leave this room until you can come out of it and play me a song that you wrote together. And that's where Tell Me comes from. Now and the irony of course is that I don't think Tell Me is a very good song. But the lesson learned was a good lesson, which is that you're not gonna make money and you're not gonna basically even, you know, you know, get the artistic respect that you deserve unless you start writing for yourselves. And of course this is a, a lesson that the band would be learning over and over and in greater measure throughout the next few years. And I guess the last thing I'll say about that, that first album, I, I, it's kind of an iconic debut of a great band. Uh, the Chuck Berry covers, I think really do stand out. Of course, you know, root 66, get your kicks on Route 66. And then Carol, of course, Carol, you know, don't let him steal your heart away. I'm going to learn to dance. If it takes me all night and day, that's Mick Jagger pulling off a Chuck Berry song, even at that young <laughs> age and just doing such a good job of it. Um but there are really some awkward moments, too. Like, you know, they, they, they do a Marvin Gaye cover called Can I Get a Witness? I love the song we talked about in our Marvin Gaye episode. The Stones, they make it sound trite and stupid because you know, Mick was just not ready for that song at that time. Uh, but the real centerpiece is Mona. Mona, it's a Bo Diddley song. And, uh, and that's where Brian Jones comes to the forefront. He does that big throbbing, you know, the, the Bo Diddley beat. And, uh, that with combined with mixed vocal is probably the single most impressive instrumental performance on their debut album which still does feel a little bit raw and a little bit gawky but there's uh, a great harbinger of things to come I
2: Yeah, so one thing I'd want to add on to uh, I wanna be your man. Um, and just to contrast it with the Beatles version, it is uh, the production is so different. I mean the Beatles version is just beautifully produced, I and mean, beautiful harmonies, you can hear the instruments, um, and the stones, it's it's just much grittier, much more raw. You know, you can feel the the blues and, and the the you know, the rock and roll coming through. You can sense that these are really just guys as you sit in a room filled with uh, milk crates, just jamming away, and and it's um, you know the result, as you said, is, is much is a much better song. You you know the the slide guitar, the solos, um, it's the beginning of that much heavier sound that the Rolling Stones I think would have uh, for years to come. And uh, another one of my favorites from their debut album is the last song, uh, "Walking the Dog." I think it's it's a great cover, and I think it's um, it's just a you know great. Another great example of the interplay between the members, you know, between Mick Jagger's those biting lyrics, as, as Scott said, very you know, very confident singing, um, and coupled with uh, Brian Jones's guitar and, and, and Keith Richards, um, and it's it's just sign of things to come. Baby,
0: So from there, um, I guess maybe you know, June of 1964, a couple of important things. They, they're on their first American tour in June of 1964, which actually doesn't go all that well. They, they hadn't broken the U.S. market in terms of a real big single yet. But it was important for a couple of reasons. One is they, they met Bobby Keys, uh, a saxophonist who would play a, a big role in, in future recordings and future songs. And they also got to record at the, uh, at the chess. Studios and uh, for people who were for a band who was used to recording with Andrew Oldham to get into a real studio like Chess and to be around literally around wasn't there a story Jeff that, that Muddy Waters was changing a light bulb when they walked in or something No like no no that? he he was
1: painting the ceiling painting the ceiling <laughs> This is this yeah he was okay so Muddy Waters of course the greatest blues artist ever practically like one of the top five. You know, he'd fallen on hard times. His records weren't selling. It's 1964. So what is he doing? He's doing odd jobs to make ends meet. And yeah, he was painting the ceiling when they walked in. Keith Richards tells the story all the time amazing
0: <laughs> so they get to, to meet some of those guys and, and 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 sort of work in the studio with them at Chuck Berry is there too yep you yeah, know he, he was there in 196 in June of 1964 and that also that month also sees the release of their next single which is one that many people know it's all over now and this is uh, stones sound in my mind coming together with you know the blues and country influences it has a carl perkins kind of edge to it with with keith's country picked electric guitar um and it, it, there's a, a bit of a tougher sound, on It's all over now as well in, in June of 64 when that's released.
1: Well, I mean, th- there's two things to, to be observed here. First of all, is that that opening riff is yeah. like the birth of like the Stones' as riff monsters. And you, and you yeah. hear the interlocking guitar weave between Jones and then Richards, especially if you can hear the stereo version, which is so superior to the mono one. But the other thing is that ridiculous guitar solo, <laughs> where, where Keith Richards just does the same phrase over, and over again, and it, I think uh it was Bruce Springsteen who actually identified it as like you know like one of his favorite guitar solos of all time, which almost sounds like a joke because it's like him just going like he's in vapor lock. He's like da 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 for like thirty five seconds. That doesn't do anything but that one repeated figure, and it sounds like a guy who's like. Doesn't know how to play anything else, but there's something about the gruffness of it, the pusillan- pusillanimity of it, <laughs> that is just everything that rock and roll was supposed to be. This is my statement. I'm gonna keep saying it until I get it through your dang thick skull. <laughs> That's it's over. That's it's all over now. In a nutshell. Uh, this is this is their chess studio recording sessions. A lot of this stuff would come out on various releases. They would release an EP after this called Five by Five, which came out. All of the songs came out in America on an album called Twelve by Five, which I think is crap. Um, but the songs, those five songs on it, are amazing, and not only because they sound good, but because like you just get they're more comfortable with their blues with their soul and also with their chuck berry covers there's a song on that called around and around it's another chuck mm-hmm. berry song yep. david bowie covered it the the grateful dead used to play it in concert all the time it's kind of a, a hearty perennial but no one's ever going to beat the original stones version and the original stones version benefits immensely from the fact that um ian stewart is playing that barrel house piano on it you know when when when, when mick starts screaming about how the joint was rocking going around and around and then like you. Just just hear this honky-tonk piano going up and down the scales uh it's it's a party it's a party on vinyl i really love that ep i love everything that came out of these chess sessions you're going to hear a lot of this stuff on their next album which is their best album uh but i don't know if any of you guys have anything else to say about this before we get on to the stones number two uh
2: with it's all over now i've always found the lyrics quite interesting particularly when mick jagger is singing um she hurt my eyes open that's no lie Tables turn, and now it's her turn to cry. Um, and um, aside from the lyrical de- uh, delivery, the you know you, you get that that signature twangy sound mm-hmm. coming through, um, right? And and I think uh, if I'm not mistaken, this is Myth- Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Um, they they sing the first verse together, and you know they they harmonize, and, and it goes into the into the verse. It's a b- beautiful song, um, and. Um, around and around, another one. I think it's um, if you look at the, uh, the there's a few live performances of it on, on YouTube. You can see just how well uh, Mick Jagger is just commanding the stage. How he, you know, strutting around, um, pulling off the song, and, and at the same time trying to fight off the screaming fans.
3: Yeah, twelve o'clock. Yeah, the place is packed. Front doors was locked. Yeah, the place is packed.
1: One final story about it's all over now that I, I just have to tell on this show is that Bobby Womack, uh, you know, who, who wrote the original song,
3: mm-hmm. uh,
1: when you know some his manager came to him and said you know stones want to record your song uh, he he, he kind of famously said to them he tells this story and it's hilarious he said like you know hell no. why am I going to let these white boys record my song they can go write their own damn song if they want but you know he was persuaded to do so reluctantly and then of course the stones record it goes immediately it's their first number one hit single in in, in the united kingdom and uh, it's of course a big hit in America too and then Womack says like you know after that point i went back to my manager and says you know tell the stones if they won't record any of my songs <laughs> they're more than welcome to <laughs> go for it <laughs> because like he had no idea the level of exposure that he yeah. was going to get from these guys which of course brings us to the weird lost album in the rolling stones career um this this one this pisses me off frankly the best album of the stones entire 1960s career prior to I'd say you know the you know maybe aftermath but probably beggar's banquet is the only one that you can't get on cd right now because uh, the weird issues with the way that in the United States, they carved these records up and released them on different leases. Some of them they kept in the can, some of them they never released. Some of them you were only able to get legally on CD in 2002. It's infuriating. What We have with the Rolling Stones number two, and I don't want to worry too much about the way Americans haul this. I know 12 by 5, the Rolling Stones now, even out of our heads in December's children, hot rocks and more hot rocks. You can find all of the songs from this record on those things spread out. Ignore that. The Rolling Stones number two is one of the great, great great albums of the 1960s and probably the single best expression of British blues, R&B you know, white white British evangelism for blues and R&B and of course it goes hand in hand with Little Red Rooster which is the uh, single that was released alongside of it. I love this album so much. I love every aspect of this album so much. It infuriates me so much that so few people understand just how great it is.
0: Before getting started because again it's not easy to, to get but uh, I listened to it in preparation. I put it on last night while I was putting together my son's new bicycle I mean it's just perfect bicycle uh, uh, you know uh, construction music uh, it's an improvement on the sound from the first album although in theme it's very similar right we're still dealing with largely with blues covers there are I believe two Jagger, three Jagger Richard Originals on the Rolling Stones number two um but it's a great well played album of of blues rock i mean electric blues the chuck berry covers on here are great you can't catch me is a berry cover that uh, that that's here uh, Charlie's drums are way up front. Uh, Bill on the swing and bass. There's just a great rhythm and a great powerful groove as they do. You can't catch me. I mean, it's um,
1: it's a, a souped-up. Gel- it, it sounds like a, like a, a, a ratchety, clanky car, just like juttering, Juddering juttering juddering down the highway. It, <laughs> it sounds like it's gonna. It's rockabilly, is what it sounds like. It's amazing. Yes. Yeah,
3: from a flat type,
0: People uh, need to know that. Song. <laughs> down, down the road, a piece is uh, it's Keith just doing Chuck Berry's guitar. It's it's awesome, uh, Ian, that,
1: That's the one, by the way, where Chuck was actually in the studio watching Keith play it, and he was like impressed. He's like, "Wow, you know," like he's basically like, "Wow, white boy knows how to play." It. Yeah,
0: it, <laughs> he was shocked. Listening to it, you understand. I mean, he he is just doing Chuck Berry to to, to the T. Uh, Ian Stewart has a great piano boogie on on down the road a piece, uh, down home girl. He's another good one. Where again, mixed mixed vocals on "Down Home Girl" already are just so deep and and and, and confident. I, I like the "Everybody Needs Somebody to Love" cover, which is the uh, the first song uh, on the album. You know the the big question here is what is under the boardwalk uh, doing on this album? Yes, it is that under the boardwalk, which yeah. does and that, that, that's fit the one that's the one first spot. Yeah, <laughs> but outside of that, even the Jagger or Richard originals. Uh, are, are, what a shame it, is not anything that's gonna. It's not groundbreaking by any stretch, but it's a piece of of original blues written by Jagger Richards that that fits in with all the great covers they do on on Rolling Stones Number Two and then i guess we also point out the the other single that people will know which is time is on my side and the huge massive difference between the 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 version on 12 by 5 which is the single version and the version on uh, number two, which is, I, th- I think by this point, is the one more people know with with the Richards guitar intro and not the organ intro. There's, there is no comparison between these two. Uh, the one on number two is so far superior. This is one of my favorite early Stones singles. I love the way that uh, the, the excitement build, the rush of excitement from the very start with, with Keith's uh, intro that sort of gets double-timed on, on the second time around on the intro, uh, the, the rush that comes when when mixing, you know, you'll come running back, uh, you know, and, and the way that Charlie plays a very interesting rhythm on what is essentially a slower song, but Charlie finds a way to kind of kind of fit his pieces in uh, the harmony vocals here are better and thicker than they were on, on say, the original album. And, and again, the, the Time Is On My Side version on uh, number two is so far superior to the one on 12 by 5
2: So is everybody needs somebody to love. Yeah. I mean, that one was also botched, I think, in the American version of this with uh, the Rolling Stones. Now, um, and I agree completely with Jeff. This is a, a fantastic album. Unfortunately, I don't know if I can say if, if it's underrated just because you can't really buy it on CD. So a lot of people haven't had the opportunity <laughs> to to listen to it, you know, in its in its entirety in this exact sequencing. Um, and so this, yeah, there isn't a lot of progress musically from the, from the debut album. I think this is. Kind of like their debut album, but, but you know, with all the screws tightened, with with a lot, you know, everything's better flowing, it sounds better. Um, the originals I love on this album. Um, aside, uh, before the originals, I think the first track that I already mentioned, Everybody Needs Somebody to Love, uh, that always reminds me of that scene from the Blues Brothers, where they're playing in the theater surrounded by the, the Illinois law enforcement. <laughs> um, I think I, uh, an excellent scene from, from a great movie. Um, and so, as, as Scott already mentioned, "Time" is on my side as a, as a wonderful, um, a wonderful single with a, a really iconic, maybe one of the first very iconic guitar licks mm-hmm. uh, to open the song, and then these kind of really nice harmonies that build up the chorus. Um, what a shame! Um, on again on the A side is is a really nice. Um, like, I don't know if, if Jeff, if you can clarify is it completely original or partly you know heavily inspired by something but
1: it, no no this this, yeah. this one is one of their originals okay. yeah what a, what a shame grown up all wrong and uh
2: there's another one I can't even remember right now off the top of my head but those are actually Jagger okay. Richards off original hook, I guess that one right off the hook I off think the is the original hook. yeah um yeah and so w- what a shame I think y- you can you can hear the beautiful mus- the mu- uh, musicianship amongst the the members, the you know, Ian Stewart's piano and then, you know, Keep and, and Brian, they as they interweave their guitars and Jones comes in then with the slide guitar, um, and Mick Jagger on the harmonica, uh, you know, Bill Wyman with with his bass, really everything that kind of builds all together into this this wonderful blues rock sound. Um, it's it's excellent and has this there's this kind of a cyclic riff to the song, which um, is the most pronounced later on in, in satisfaction You can hear that kind of stuff here what
3: a shame. seems to be going right
2: Um, down the road a piece. I think I actually like it more than the original Chuck Berry version. I think it's it's a little bit faster. It's um, it's excellently played by Keith. Um, and the last one, off the hook. I think that the the song is off the hook. It's it's a uh, it's an excellent, excellent kind of blues rock song.
1: I, honestly, they end this thing with like a really fast, short version of Suzy Q, <laughs> uh, which was, of course, going to be later made famous by uh, Creedence Clearwater Revival. Mm-hmm. This is the better version. <laughs> I, 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 always th- I always thought that, that the Credence version was like, you know, we talked about this on our episode with Phil Wegman. Uh, it's like, uh, yeah, it's like they don't really know what to do. They're just trying to make it into some psychedelic freak out. But no, I like this. This is this faster, agitated version. And then, of course, yeah, as you guys already all said, the best thing you can say about the Rolling Stones number two is that Time Is On My Side is just another album track on it.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> It's, like, it's not a single in, in the United Kingdom. It's just like one of the things they did. And the other thing I, w- I will point out is that their second number one hit single in the United Kingdom is Little Red Rooster. Uh, it's not on the album. It was on Rolling Stones now. So in America, that's where you'll find it. Uh, but this is the first and last time a pure blues song would ever go to number one on the charts and this is you know the triumph of of brian jones's original vision for the band this is before they started writing their own singles and of course that's what we're going to get to next that's where the you know the rolling stones become the commercial monsters that they have been to this day but uh little red rooster is this very slow kind of almost uh you know lazy peripatetic song about like you know uh, you know the rooster of course is a a metaphor for you know get male sexuality on <laughs> um, the little red rooster strutting around the barnyard and uh yeah but i you know I, i'm past my golden days and I, i'm not just what i used to be it has this beautiful beautiful slide guitar Um, from Jones. The bottleneck that he goes up and down his fret with, it just drips sexuality and aggression and it's just such a good song.
3: I am the little red rooster Too late the crow for day I am the little red rooster to lazy the crow for day. Keep everything in the farm upset. And
1: but of course, the, what what happens at this point is that the Stones, of course, have been listening to the Beatles and have been competing with them and have been kind of working in that pop milieu of 1960s London. And, uh, suddenly start to realize that, hey, you know, we got to start writing our own hits. we got to start writing our own singles. And so what's the next thing that they come out with? It's a song that they kind of nicked the chorus from, from an old Staple Singer song. Um, but they wrote themselves. Brian Jones, again, plays that big riff, that, that big fiery riff that you hear at the beginning of it. And it's a song called The Last Time. And this brings us to what I consider a tetralogy. Four singles in a row that I think we should maybe all take together, uh, even though they cover like, some of the most important songs <laughs> the Rolling Stones will ever record. Uh, it's The Last Time. Uh, it's a little ditty called I Can't Get No Satisfaction, Get Off of My Cloud, and then 19 Nervous Breakdown. These four songs are the Stones at their mid-60s peak Uh, I'd love to deal with these four songs as a group first. I know there's so much that you could say about them. Uh, And then we'll get to Out of Our Heads before we go on. What do you guys think?
0: Sure. Well, I I uh, I'm going to leave 19th. We have so much to cover in so little time. Like Willie like right. said, exactly. uh, I'll leave 19th nervous breakdown for Jeff. I know it's one of his favorites and and for good reason. It is, it's not forgotten, right? But it gets lost in the shuffle sometimes too. Everyone, you know, yeah, time is on my side. go off my clock. 19th nervous breakdown is is just outstanding. Um, what more can be said about satisfaction? Um, perhaps the most iconic riff in rock and roll history. Um, and they knew it when they had it. Uh, the Stones were not very well known for multiple takes in the studio, right? They, they would come in, they would figure it out and, and, and get out. Satisfaction, they actually took multiple stabs out of the studio. Um, it was unusual for them, but they realized what they were working with with Satisfaction and what it would become. Um, and that, that fuzz, pedal, pedal riff that everyone knows so well here's something that that might be new if you listen closely to Satisfaction, you know the riff of course the the first two times it re-enters, that riff re-enters, it's late Um, the first time you actually hear that the fuzz pedal click on the second time that it that it re enters the song, Keith is actually late on it from where it's supposed to, to be. And then the the last time it reenters, um, uh, he's early. Like, I oh, I'm not gonna miss I'm not gonna be late again here, mate. And he actually clicks things on early. The the end of the very last part he's playing gets fuzzed out because he, he he turns the fuzz pedal back on. Listen next time you hear satisfaction, you will never hear it again without thinking of those things.
1: You can practically hear Even though you can't in your mind, you hear the moment where his foot clicks the button.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Uh, And then the other thing is as much as that riff is satisfaction. The 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 non fuzzed part, right, where they're sort of weaving uh the, the weaving rhythm in the verses is just as impressive. Uh the guitar work from Keith Richards during those non-fuzz parts at Satisfaction. Listen close to the way the way he's playing, uh in between mixed lyrics. Uh and of course Charlie just pounding away at the unceasing four-four time. I mean, he is absolute Perfection in terms of setting the backbeat. It's a metronome of four, four times. Last time, which Jeff mentioned, look, that, that, that Brian Jones riff that Gr- Jones plays, it's not a Keith riff, it's one that Jones plays, that is essentially the song, right? So how good is that riff that you can hear it for whatever it is, two and a half minutes, and never really get tired of it? Uh, even the solo there is just, you know, someone riffing, I assume it's Keith, just riffing chords over that Brian Jones riff that carries the whole song. It's not even all that interesting of a, of a chorus, right? This could be the last time, last time, I don't know. Um, but it's undeniable how powerful the last time is just from that, that riff, which would be kind of a, a a motif of the Stones moving forward. And um, I guess I'll uh, I guess I'll guess end there, and maybe Harry has some thoughts on so Get Off My Cloud and other things that I've mentioned already.
2: Um, yeah, before I get to uh, Get Off of My Cloud, I think one thing I'd like to say about Satisfaction, I think it's one of the first Stone songs that... Um, delved a bit into social commentary as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the lyrics, particularly, they're you know kind of about. And I, I'd imagine this maybe came from when the Stones were in America and they were kind of exposed to the American culture. And they were uh, the the lyrics in the song, right? When Jagger sings, um, "When I'm driving in my car and the man come on the radio, he's telling me more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination." and uh, it's so the song really is about consumerism and they're trying to make a comment on that. And this is Yeah, because
1: uh, he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as
2: me. That's right. It's a great, it's a great <laughs> line. Um and and as we'll see as we go through this their early discography, this you know, this comes up in uh in upcoming albums as well. As, you know, they have songs where they they introduce some some subtle social commentary. Um, And aside from that, I think just the story of how the song was written was also great, where Keith Richards says he just woke up one morning and uh, (laughs) he had the riff just rolling in his head, right? And he ran to a a tape recorder as soon as he could to record it. Um, uh, The next one, Get uh, Get Off of My Cloud, uh, I think is really good. This one, of course, is a a statement, I guess, a response to the record companies who are asking him to churn out more singles, right, after the, the major success of Satisfaction. They were saying, leave us alone. Um, and a, a short, funny story on this one actually is uh, at the the company I work at. When we were having uh, a big retirement party for uh, the CTO of the firm, um, he's kind of known in the company to um, to be very averse to putting stuff on on cloud computers, on cloud servers, and whatnot. And uh, to do this big because he, he's been with the company for decades. And anyway, to do the big retirement party, a couple of guys from the the company who play in bands they all got together and. Put on a small concert of his favorite songs. so one of them was a, a slight modification of get off of my cloud to be <laughs> get, get off of the cloud <laughs> and that, that was a lot of fun so um aside from that from these other singles uh 19 nervous breakdown um jeff i i also know you love that one but um uh, a few brief words i think it's probably an underrated one i think you know satisfaction gets all the all the praise and the accolades but 19 Nervous Breakdown is such an addictive song. You know, from that very first um, iconic guitar riff that opens it, you just want to get up and dance along. Uh, it's, It's so well delivered, so well executed. Um, and I'll, I'll let you pick it up from there.
1: Well, I mean, okay, there are two things I want to talk about. Satisfaction, there's nothing you can say about it that hasn't already been said by a hundred and other pretentious PhD uh, in literature students already. It's like they write these, the, you get it, the commentaries on consumerism, but of course, you know, what's the real point of it? it it's actually a sex joke at yeah. the end where she's like, yeah, baby, come back, baby next week, because I, I guess I'm on a losing streak. He's talking about a woman who's on her period. Uh, yeah, that that's true. They were. That in there, Uh, but the ones that really grip me are "Get Off of My Cloud," which is a song that the Stones never liked. Jagger and Richards sort of dismiss it Mm -hmm. these days; they don't play it that often on, on tour. Um I love it. It's it's I always thought of it as like, you know, the Stones smoking an awful lot of Dylan. And so like they they're 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 getting into these weird imagistic lyrics, very kind of fantasistic, Uh You know, <clears throat> the, the great image of like, you know, I live alone, you know, you know, on the 99th floor of my block. Uh, you know, so easily you know, living in some, some enormous skyscraper. And then he goes down to the park in the middle of the day. And there's, there's so many people. There was nobody, not a soul around. He comes back and he finds like what the the parking tickets were like flags on my windscreen. He's really kind of very clever. Very kind of memorable images, which you can barely hear in the mix. And by the way, this is one of the things. Andrew Luke Alden, everybody says, yeah, crap producer. I love the production of Get Off On My Cloud mm-hmm. because I like the fact that you can't necessarily hear those lyrics. You have to work for them. And you have to dig them out of the mix. I love that. to me are you know, secondary compared to what I consider to be the preternatural rock athleticism of 19th Nervous Breakdown. This came out after Out of Our Heads. In fact, this is actually a song from the early Aftermath sessions, which we'll get to after this. Um, this is a song where they, they're just doing jumping jacks and Backflips, <laughs> like you know, vaulting off the pole, you know they're they're basically just impressing you with how easily this stuff comes to them. <laughs> this is a song that, that that Mick was writing about, I guess, another fractured relationship that he'd had at the time with uh, you know yet another British model. Uh, but you know, here it comes, here it comes, here comes your nineteenth nervous breakdown, and then they go into that that middle eight where it's oh, who's to blame? That girl's just insane, and you. These three-part harmonies, which is not something you normally hear from the Rolling Stones, you know Keith. I think overdubbed himself twice, <laughs> you know, like you know <laughs> one part in the middle and then on the top. And uh, it's it's again them just showing how good they are at pulling this music off. At the time, the the opening riff of the song sounds like somebody's firing up the engine on an incredibly
0: powerful car. Thank you.
1: That tetralogy of singles is so fascinating because what comes in between it is sort of the least remembered and most forgettable album of their mid-60s career, which is Out of Our Heads. In America, Out of Our Heads is the first number one Stones album. In America, people think of Out of Our Heads as, like, that's the one that has satisfaction. That's the one that has The Last Time and Play With Fire and all those random live songs, which, why the hell are they on here? Yeah, no, that's not the actual Out of Our Heads that was released in England. and was the Stones' intended statement. This one's more of an absorption of their of r&b and soul stuff that they picked up while they were touring america in that time there are a lot of really good songs on this particularly in the first half which i think i think begins great with she said yeah which is practically proto-punk um it is
0: yes absolutely yep
1: yeah it's like it's like a minute and 30 seconds long and it's just like bam boom it turns your head around and musses your hair up and before you know it it's done you've got stuff like that's how strong my love is which that should have sucked that should have failed they should have not been able to do that song as well as they did it but Mick just kills it and the and bill bill wyman and charlie watts that rhythm section just destroy it on the choruses when Mick starts singing that's how strong my love is that's an amazing song but the rest of this album even the sort of like folky self-written stuff at the end like i'm free i don't know this is the one where it feels like they're
2: treading water and that's as close as they ever came to treading water during the 60s so have two of my favorites on this album are actually on the b-side um, I'm a big fan um, of uh, the under-assistant West Coast Promotion Man. Uh, if nothing, then just for the lyrics, I think is, it's just a really funny song. Um, when when Mick Jagger is singing, Yeah, I'm sitting here thinking just how sharp I am. I'm a necessary talent behind every rock and roll band. Yeah, I'm sharp. I'm really, really sharp. It, it, it's Fredo. Fredo Corleone as yeah. a rock and roll yeah. promoter. <laughs> I sure do earn my pay sitting on the beach every day, um, and I mean the. I think what makes it so great to me is I, like I can just relate it. I mean, I, I think there's so many useless people in, in a lot of different industries, a lot of different companies where you can just take it and um, and as I guess as a as a I guess a running joke. There's you know certain people I know I kind of just refer to them as the as the under-assistant West Coast promotion man. <laughs> and I guess people who don't know the song have no idea what you're talking about. And aside from that, um, the other song that I really liked was uh, "Oh Baby, We Got a Good Thing Going." I think there's uh, these these points where you know Keith Richards he'll do these these five strums on the guitar, and then Mick Jagger just howls, you know, "Oh Baby, We Got a Good Thing," and it's it's very John Lennon esque, um, and it I just I love hearing it every time
0: i agree with jeff this is kind of a holding pattern uh album there's not much that uh uh, it's not it's not bad uh it's it's not uh uninspired they still play well but there's not much that really sticks with me after the album comes to a conclusion um mercy mercy is uh early in the album they actually pulled that one out on their current tour first time they played it since the 1960s um good times uh, uh, sam Cooke song uh, it's all right but the arrangement i don't love it sounds almost exactly as the way sam cook would have done it uh even nick kind of sings in a far more kind of soulful uh tone uh than he would otherwise uh the one i yeah i actually do like i'm free which i think is the very last song on this yeah. album it's um, the last song yeah it's got a this very relaxed and, and shuffling kind of of sound to it, uh, kind of a, a amalgamation of Motown and '60s soul, and also a little folk. You
1: got, that, you got that echoey piano in the background, yeah. kind of watery. Yeah. Uh,
0: Mick is Mick does a, a, one of his earliest, I think, falsettos as a, as a like a, a, a stacked vocal on his lead. Uh, Charlie, this is one of the few times Charlie messes up. It's yes, on. I was
1: th- I was wondering yes. if you were going to say that. There's like an error in the song. There is, like, it's like,
0: completely. Uh, but right about halfway through, I think it's 140 or 150 into it. Uh, I think it's coming out of the chorus, maybe. And Charlie is t- just... Totally misses the beat, completely misses it. And it takes him four or five seconds to figure out where he's supposed to be. They never fixed it. I mean, it's the way it sounds on the on 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 the song, on the album. Um and it, it, Charlie is not usually one to to have mistakes like that. And I'm not sure how it got left on the track and they never went back and said, you know, maybe we should fix that, because it's very obvious. Um, everyone's
1: in a rush man this is this is, this is the British invasion I era guess. everyone's got everyone's got duties yep. get, get it to
0: the label and, and, and you know lyrically it, it kind of predates the summer of love a bit right because it's you know I'm free to do what I want any old time um, in in both love and in life uh, and that's the lyrics that uh, that I'm free comes with but the soup dragons covered this in like 1990 and had a, a minor hit with it but the original stones version I still like very much. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the U.S., Out of Our Heads is much more because its satisfaction is on there, and I think what the last time is on there too on the U.S. And,
1: and play with fire, a song we yes. haven't even really talked yeah. about, which you know is you know this this they recorded it late at night in the studio. Phil Spector was there, you know, playing the um, the the detuned uh, bass, and you know, you know, I, I don't know if it's Keith on the harpsichord or, or Jack Nietzsche. I think it's actually Jack niche who's yeah. doing the uh, the harpsichord, and then it's like you know it's this very creepy kind of quasi kinks social observation about like how Mick Jagger's like, you know, talking about this high society chick that he met in a bar who thinks she's all, that but like no no don't play with me because you're playing with fire and uh, yeah i mean just you know very ahead of its time the only people who'd done anything like that up until that point in the united kingdom were the, the kings with a well-respected man but this is much more menacing than that
0: very tension filled and it's a slow burn that never quite ignites which makes it that more that much more dark and kind of brooding that just it never catches fire It just sort of is there
1: I mean, it's a great song, and and but this is nevertheless the end of an era, or the beginning of the era, because you know you talk about all these self-written singles, and of course, you know they're writing all these great a sides, but they're still doing the sort of blues covers, R and B soul, Motown covers on their albums. Something had to change, and of course, what changed for everybody in England was the release of Rubber Soul by the Beatles, which is defiant declaration from the Beatles like saying yeah, you can't catch us we're ahead of you you'll never catch up and we're the best and the Stones grasped the nettle and said no no that's not necessarily true we can play in your field so did the kinks as well uh Mm -hmm. immediately after that and what ends up coming out of that is an album called aftermath um famously i think ringo Starr, when he was asked uh what 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 are the beatles supposed to title the follow-up to revolver ringo said well we should call it after geometry um (laughs) And uh, the reason that he did that is because Aftermath really lays down a gauntlet. This is a bizarre album. In America, you know it. It has 12 or 11 songs, and it's like a normal length. But the original UK release of Aftermath was perverse. It's 14 songs long, all of them written finally. All of them are Jagger Richards compositions. All of them are kind of out there outre brian jones because he's sort of been surpassed as a guitarist Mm -hmm. by keith He's decided I'm gonna instead I'm gonna make myself relevant to the band by being their primary colorist. So what is he doing? He's playing marimbas, he's playing you know timpanis, dulcimers, zithers, any any sitar, any conceivable instrument he can get his hands on <laughs> that actually isn't a guitar. Brian Jones is playing for, on that album. Uh, but the other thing is that it's like
0: 57 minutes long. Well, when you have uh, an 11-minute song right smack dab in the middle, that'll that'll you know push the time out a bit.
1: For people, okay, we're talking in 2019, people who maybe, you know, younger folks don't understand the limitations that vinyl imposes yes. upon sound right. and sound quality. You cannot put that much music onto an album without degrading the sound quality because the grooves have to become so thin. It's a 33 and a third record a it- it has a physical size that can't increase you have to make the groove smaller what happens is they start warping but the stones just said screw that we're going to put all this music onto here we're going to prove that we can compete we play with the big boys we are in the big boy league and they did it with Aftermath. This is an album in the United Kingdom that opens with Mick Jagger singing What a Dragon Is Getting Old. It's as much of a middle finger to the face of polite society as it gets. He's talking about moms uh, in their suburban homes getting addicted to pills, which is actually kind of still a relevant issue <laughs>
0: in 2019. <laughs> Dr. the Please,
3: some more of me. Same today, I hear every mother say they just don't appreciate that you get tired. They're so hard to satisfy, you can tranquilize your man. So go running for the shelter of a mother's little helper and for help you through the night, help to minimize your flight.
1: Um, uh, and then in America, uh, it actually begins with "Painted Black," which in the United Kingdom was a non-album single. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about them actually at the same time. I think they both deserve to be considered as part of these sessions. But uh, this is an album where the Stones declared their independence. They said, "Yeah, we're songwriters. We're not going to cover people anymore." And after this moment, the Stones never were a cover band again. They threw maybe one cover song on to their albums just to say, "Like, hey, you know, we we still have our." foot in that world but this is the jagger richards era beginning this is the start of the new rolling stones basically this is where everything gets reset and rebuilt uh what do you guys think about aftermath which i think a lot of people say is the you know the important sort of the the pivotal point in the stones career
2: so this is definitely the album i think where um Jagger and Richards, they kind of emerge as as the key, you know, the songwriters, the driving force of the band. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's also when Brian Jones is, you know, he's the one who's making a lot of these songs memorable and, and very interesting. Like, it would be hard to imagine um, a song like um, Under My Thumb without Brian Jones, um, you know, when he's playing. And uh, that one, I think... Um, the, the marimba perhaps on that one he's yeah. you know and, and yeah. he's adding all these you know these background noises which you know at, at first you kind of you think of the drums the guitar the bass um, but you know and under that there's all these interesting things happening that subconsciously makes you love the song and and all of that is, is Brian Jones so uh, the you know the opening track as, as Jeff talked a little bit about is uh, is just one of the the greatest opening lines to an album you know what what a drag it is getting old. Um, and then it has got this really kind of addicted uh this this addictive uh, i guess no pun intended there, but the the riff itself on the twelve string guitar that da da dum da da dum uh, along with charlie watts um it's beautiful i I love that song um and then uh, there's two songs which we'll kind of talk about together uh, stupid girl and under my thumb it it to me at least it opens this kind of new category of stone songs where the music is beautiful, um but the lyrics are
1: yeah, this is this is the Stones misogyny category. Soon to be followed by stray cat girl and <laughs> yes. others.
2: Yeah. So as, uh, as someone on Twitter I noticed said, um, misogyny and C minor. Um, <laughs> it's, so the um, you know the, these two, both of these songs, I think just the, the music and the melody, the rhythm, uh, they're just really beautiful. I mean, and as you said, Revolver, um, sorry, Rubber Soul just came out, and so while Paul McCartney was singing like, you know, Norwegian Wood and you know, Michelle. Um, you know, here on this album, there was like you know, "Stupid Girl," but you know, at the same time, again, beyond the lyrics, um, just around the um, the one minute and nineteen or twenty second mark, the song just slowly builds into this this beautiful chorus, right? And then around the twenty six sec, one minute twenty six seconds, it just changes the beat and bursts into the chorus. Um, you just you have to listen to it. It's it's really cool. It's addictive. I I love that part of the song. Will I- Uh, and then Under My Thumb, similarly, just you know, beautiful instrumentations, right? The marimba from Brian Jones. Um, and then Bill, Bill Wyman's bass, right, is really cool in there. I think he's credited, uh, the instrumentation is credited as something called uh, a fuzz bass, which means he, he's overdriving uh, the bass. Um, and uh, if I'm not mistaken, this is something that was, you know, Influencer or, or Nick from the Beatles. Uh, yeah, from was, Think for Yourself. Think for Yourself, yeah. Paul McCartney did something very similar to that. Um, and then Mick Jagger, again, with his vocals, you know, he, he goes, to the, it's like just a roller coaster following his voice and emotion through the song as he sings um, Under My Thumb. Uh, my other two favorites, uh, Flight 505, I think is a hilarious song. I, I love that song. Um, and I guess it's, it's another slight bit of social commentary. This is a song really about having a great life uh, and throwing it away, really, in search of something that could be even better. Um, and if you listen closely just very you know 19 seconds or so into the song you hear the satisfaction riff which uh, which makes me wonder if if it was kind of as a subtle hint that they're also alluding to the whole consumerism idea or if that's overthinking it <laughs> but if you listen to the song you'll hear satisfaction played at the, the beginning of the song um, and let's see the the weakest song I think is high and dry on this one no that's a great song Now it, you're wrong it's it's not okay it's not it's not what i like about it is that it's it's their first kind of foray into country music and i think they really um they get a lot better at it in Beggar's banquet um and it what it does do is it shows the album's diversity right from from their from the r&b and blues covers to you know to all the the foray of different you know different ideas and, and uh, themes explored in this one um to take it or leave it is uh is not that good um but otherwise um, I, I think this is a great, you know, great foray into original songwriting for for the Rolling Stones.
1: Now, now here's the thing: uh, when you give me the Stones doing country, uh, I'm I'm more or less always on board. And when you give me the Stones being silly, <laughs> oh, I'm definitely on board for that. So high and dry is hilarious, and it has a, a third virtue, which is Brian Jones playing harmonica. You know, he had two key instruments. He, of course, he was a multi-instrumentalist during this year, and he would start getting into some, the Mellotron, which we'll talk about. Um, but uh, what I, you know, Jones known for the bottleneck slide, but the other thing that he did incredibly well is play the harmonica. He mm. was a great harp player. And when you hear him on high and dry, you know, like those very country fried licks, I uh, you know, it's just Mick Jagger talking about some woman who's gone and done him wrong again. I don't know. It, maybe it's not for everyone's tastes, but I love that song. That's one of the strong points on this one. There are weaker stuff on the back half of Aftermath, but I, I love that one. Scott,
0: um, I don't know if there's you know it's possible having a really hot take on the Stones at this point, but I will say that I I don't love Aftermath. That I I think it's. Um it's 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 clearly behind what say the Beatles and the Kinks were doing around this time in 1966. Uh, it's all Jagger Richards, uh, and I think they're they're strained a bit by having to fill every slot on the album in addition to the singles that were coming out around. Uh, this time, um, I, I I don't love the production, and the, again, early Stones isn't produced all that well. But I said that, and then Jeff sent me the link to the uh, to the remasters, and I listened to those, and I still don't think it's great. Like Flight 505, which uh, which Harry loves, I, I think it's a good song, It's really torpedoed by the the production. The the the, the great boogie woogie piano that Ian Stewart's playing is is buried in that in that mono mix, but b- 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 uh, behind a whole lot of stuff. Um, There's two songs here. Uh, Actually, uh, the melody on Stupid Girl is really good. And then, of course, you deal with lyrics. Under My Thumb the the track on under my thumb is so fascinating to listen to you have the lyrics on top first you know the, on, under my thumb the girl who once had me down and late of course under my thumb she's the sweetest mm, pet in the world as uh, Mick kind of takes on that 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 character uh, but, but the, the 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 actual track is really fascinating and sophisticated you have the upright piano There's an acoustic guitar in the mix, marimba, xylophone, and the coolness of the music clashing with like the heat of the lyrics is really an attraction to Under My Thumb. we The other song, um, "I Am Waiting," is uh, is one of the best Stone tracks of this era. A very mournful melody. Brian Jones plays dulcimer on this one. You have, you know, the, the soft loud dynamic, essentially, you know, the, from a whisper to a scream, uh, so to speak, from the verses to to the chorus. And in the chorus, Mick vents the frustration that's sort of building uh, during the verses. One of those early Stones tracks. were making Keith thar- do, do harmony vocals, and, and just really a, a gorgeous melody on on the up-tempo the, the chorus sections uh, really really great song the lyrics filled fear and kind of paranoia but but the music is is beautiful i am waiting i really like from aftermath
3: for someone to come out of somewhere, waiting for someone to come out of somewhere.
0: Yeah, like take it or leave it and think i think are, are, are kind of just merely adequate i, I really think that aftermath is uh, is not quite as good as a lot of the stuff that surrounds it from the stones era
1: so you're saying you're a huge fan of have you seen your mother baby standing in the shadows or are you a painted black man scott which one is it um of
0: those two i like painted black uh better than have you seen your mother I
1: mean, okay, so painted black, you know Brian Jones. They, they went on tour, um, you know, and uh, of course, Norwegian Wood of, it features on Rubber Soul with a sitar. And then Brian Jones go they they go down to like Australia or something like that. And so he 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 buys one. And he's like, all right, I'm going to do this. And he you know he says like I'm going to figure out how to play it and buy gum because Brian Jones was couldn't <laughs> write an, a song to save his life, but man, natural. he could figure out how to use any yeah. damn instrument. Yep. Uh, He just is done, and there you go. And it was actually supposed to originally be a comedy song. They were playing it as a joke, uh, and in the studio, making fun of their old their old manager Eric Easton, uh, who used to play organ for a movie theater back in the old days. Uh, And then they suddenly realized, wait, wait, wait a second, this actually this this could be something. Um, It's like it's hilariously dark, but also. The thing about painted black that I think most people don't realize is that it's just a joke. You know, I see everything gets painted black. Small rocks, (laughs) red doors, uh, you know, lines of cars, everything gets painted black. It's almost like that. The South Park parody of Goth Kids who listen to The Cure that's Painted <laughs> Black. Uh, despite all that, nobody cares because you have that Dick
0: Dale drumming from Charlie Watts. That, and, and real quick, Jeff, that is so apparent live. Um, you know, Charlie Watts' drum on Painted Black is essentially you know double time rhythm for what's happening around him in the song. That is so apparent when you see this song live. It's fantastic.
1: It's, it's, just, it's it obliterates any. Other qualms that you might have with the lyrics or like the the melody construction, which is just a simple run up and down the scales. Who cares? It's painted black. You've known it all your entire life, you've loved it your entire life. guess i don't know how much we really need to talk about have you seen your mother baby uh which is sort of like the lost single of the stones mid-60s they're attempted to be kind of like a you know a psychedelic freak out do their revolver style tricks (laughs) uh i don't think it's that good of a song it's it's a bit too uh it's a novelty tune frankly as far as i'm concerned i don't know if you guys disagree
0: i don't i agree (laughs) <laughs> all right. Well, then forget all that. Let's just
1: move on to the next album. The Stones are getting more pop. Brian Jones, even though he can't write a song to save his life and is, is becoming increasingly alienated from the group, is actually exerting more influence on them in a weird way because he's the guy who brings all those pop touches and pop colorations to the band. So what do you have? You have the next album and single of the Stones era. Um, This is the one point where they made an unabashedly pop album. And I don't know, man, maybe there's it's not a coincidence. This is the the least loved and least talked about Rolling Stones album in their entire history, even more so than Satanic Majesties, which is everybody makes fun of as being like the Sergeant Pepper's ripoff fine people still notice it and know about it but nobody talks about between the buttons which i think is other than you know, rolling stones number two uh the most underrated album of their entire career and of course the single that came out around this time is the one that sort of ended up sucking up the oxygen let's mm-hmm. spend the night together and then the b-side is ruby tuesday ruby tuesday was their second number one hit single in the united states uh I love Ruby Tuesday. I think Let's Spend the Night Together is, is, I don't know, it's kind of, uh, it doesn't depress me that much. But I really love Between the Buttons as a very weird pop album from a band that would not really ever go on to make pop music after this point. Between the Buttons... They're doing Bob Dylan pastiches. They're doing Brian Wilson pastiches. They're doing Kinks pastiches. And they're just basically ending up writing a lot of great music that never get played live or never get taken on the road. And the only person who ever seems to love it as much as I do is Wes Anderson, who (laughs) ended up using a lot of their songs on his films because Wes Anderson steals my thoughts from my mind.
0: Uh, Between the Buttons is far by my, my, far better than aftermath and i know that aftermath is the one that sort of that sort of stands out from this era but i think between the buttons is really excellent uh and even jagger and, and richards don't have a, a ton of great things to say about between the buttons as jeff mentioned there's not a ton of songs there's not virtually any songs that uh, have been in the live rotation at any time in the recent uh past from between the buttons but it's 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 Popier. It's a little more uh, English-influenced, right? Uh, some of these songs you would not be surprised to hear that the Kinks perhaps play. Uh, like Something Happened to Me Yesterday is very Kinks-ish. Uh, kind of a jazzy folk country feel. Um, but Between the Buttons has a very, very good stretch right toward the middle. Uh, so Backstreet Girl, uh, I want to I highlight. Backstreet Girl is a uh, is, is very tender, acoustic, folk-type song. Uh, in Waltz time, uh, a man who wants a woman uh, with, without any strings, right? Uh, you can be my back, Backstreet Girl, but I don't want you part of my world, essentially. There's an accordion solo, for goodness sake, in Backstreet Girl. Um, I, I think it's one of the really great tracks on Between the Buttons. Backstreet Girl is great.
3: These don't you call me at home. These don't come knocking at night. These never ring on the phone. Your manners are never quite right Please take the favours I grant Curtsy and look, not your love just for me Don't want you part of my world Just you be my backstreet girl
0: uh, after that, you have uh, a song called Connection, which is very much a Keith song. Uh, this this very hard riff, um, which actually it's kind of buried between piano and drums on the mix. It's mostly a Keith song. That goes right into She Smiled Sweetly, which is a fantastic song. Uh, this booming Hammond organ that sort of sets the pace for the entire thing. Uh, Wyman's bass is very loud. Uh, and th- this is one of the very, very Dylan tracks um, and even the melody itself you can kind of get just like a woman out of it uh, very blonde on blonde type you're of a sad
1: eyed lady of the lowlands too I yeah. can get that right that's
3: what she said so softly I understood for once in my life and feeling good most all of the time cause she smiled <clears throat> She smiled sweetly. She smiled sweetly. And said, don't worry.
0: Uh, But that's a great stretch. And that's followed, though, by what I would say is not a great stretch. And and, and in some ways, I understand if there's criticisms of the the album, I think it's here. There's uh, Calm, Cool, and Collected, and then All Sold Out, and Please Go Home. I don't think that those are Really stand out tracks, but toward the end you get who's been sleeping here, uh, which again has a very Dylan feel to it uh, Miss Amanda Jones features this very dirty Keith Riff uh, with the, with a the tack piano on top of it uh, I, I think between the buttons is a is uh, I don't know if Stone's album can be overlooked right but certainly it does not get the the praise that aftermath gets though I think between the buttons is the superior al- superior album.
1: I'm going to tell you right now who's been sleeping here that makes my top five at the end of this show Uh, it's one of the five great stone song from this era and uh, you know people unless they're super fans of the Rolling Stones don't even know what that is. I'm going to tell you that I have never heard in my entire life a better, more entertaining Bob Dylan pastiche (laughs) than that song. Uh, Brian Jones' harmonica on that, he's an accomplished blues harmonica player. So he knows how to play in a completely different style. But what he is very clearly trying to do on purpose is do Bob Dylan on Blonde on Blonde. Mm -hmm. And you've got that great great you know again it's, it's the blonde on blonde, blonde sound with the piano underneath from Jack Nitsch and then the acoustic guitar backing uh, and then Dylan singing these vaguely folky lyrics it's just a very winsome but also kind of quietly and sadly lonely song that I just sort of every time I hear it I just wonder like why do people not know about this? This is the way I feel about Monkey Man. Of course, you know, Martin Scorsese had to go ruin that by, yeah. by putting it in his film. But, uh, you know, like, this is another one of those lost stones gems.
3: Who's been eating, eating off my plate? Who would tell me who in this big The Sergeant, the Soldier, the Cool Old Grenadier. Oh.
1: I like who called collected Scott I, I, you know it's it's a very kinksy kind of a thing but you know it's a good song I like almost every single I love all sold out where, where Brian Jones hmm. brings the flute back or the, the recorder that he uses on Ruby Tuesday and uses it really well and turns what otherwise might have been a pedestrian sort of a uh, sort of gut bucket rock track into something that's memorable i don't think there are really any songs on this record that fail to live up to the the you know the promise of the pop 60s 66 67 era and which is sort of i have in my mind an association that i I bring to the united kingdom with all the those, those albums from that period. Um, you know, I, I think of like the weird squalling bass lines on My Obsession, which sound like a smile outtake. I think of My you, Obsession
0: I mean, to me is, we is, mentioned Proto Punk earlier. My Obsession sounds very Proto Punk to me. They're the growling bass from Wyman, a very simple, thumping Charlie uh, uh, drum line um, that, that, that's just very, very raw. And then, but but what's the song that immediately precedes it? It's Yesterday's, Yesterday's Papers, Papers yeah.
1: which is these very very clear, cool, you know, uh, xylophones, like, do 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 do, you know, and then Mick and then Keith harmonizing on the chorus. This is them being pop musicians. This yep. is them trying to be the Beatles, and I think actually really succeeding very well at it. But you know, this is a far minority opinion. Nobody else
2: likes this album, barely except us, Harry yeah um so before i jump into between the buttons uh ruby tuesday is one of my favorite rolling stone songs and it's it's one of those songs which um you know unlike i guess a lot of songs this one for me it does not suffer from listening fatigue
3: hmm.
2: um you know there's a lot of you know big rock singles or, or hits like like hotel california which you've heard a million times and when it comes on at least for me it's like okay here we go again um but ruby tuesday i can i just never get tired of the song. Um, You know, the chorus and and, um, the rhythm, everything about it, I I just love. There's no time to lose,
3: I heard her say. Catch your dreams before they slip away. Dying all the time. Lose your dreams, and you will lose your mind In life unkind
2: the B side to it and at least in America I think with the Let's Spend the Night Together Um, this was um, I I don't like it as much but it was I guess to my understanding I think this one they kind of tried to go a little more push the buttons as far as you know the topic goes right I think when they played it on the Ed Sullivan show they even said you know you guys have to it's uh let's spend some time together making a little more pg
1: with mick jagger rolling his eyes uh skyward as he had to sing it famous yeah
0: (laughs) which is perfect mick too right because he's pissed off enough to kind of make a deal about it he didn't really want to do it but in the end knows that it's the best business interests of the rolling stones inc to be on the (laughs) edit show and, and sing that lyric
2: bottom line baby yeah um and then jumping into the album uh so i discovered this album um this was probably one of the later albums in the whole discography that I ended up discovering. It was, and uh, upon first listen, I think the only thing I can compare it to was when I, the first time I heard uh, Tumbleweed Connection from Elton John. It's kind of, it's it's like you, you think you know the discography, right? And then you hear this one album that you've never given much attention to, and your eyes kind of spring open. And it's like, wow, where has this, you know, where has this been this whole time? Um, and so from the opening song, Yesterday's Papers, um, it, it again. It goes into this uh, this Mick Mick Jagger mis- misogyny box where um, the lyrics, yeah, they're they're <laughs> um, Once I mean, yesterday. You can read in front of yourselves, right? Comparing yeah. you know women to newspapers, but but the melody and just the backing vocals are just so beautiful. Um, um, and of course, Brian Jones on the vibraphone and the harp, the harpy chord, the harp, harpsichord. Um, it's it's a beautiful song. Um, and then off of that, Backstreet Girl. Is is another really really great Stone song, and again here you know Mick Jagger is singing about um, you know married men with mistresses, Um, and it's um, and then you know this was a time I believe Mick Jagger himself wasn't married, so this is not this is more of a you know critique I guess from his perspective, Um, and then you know this one I think they add even more instruments. Charlie Watts adds uh, claves. Because drum said, and you know, you could hear you could hear in the song all these different things happening at the same time. Um, Connection is is a great. It's one of their harder rockers on this album. Um, and then something happened to me yesterday. Um, it's uh, it has a horn section, which I think I don't remember ever you know hearing that on a Stone song before. Um, Brian Jones, right? He he does the trumpet, the tuba, the trombone, and he even whistles. Right? There's just this catchy, it's really irresistible groove in the song. Um, and then as Mick Jagger, he does this kind of staccato style, um, singing of the words when he's like, something happened to me, this kind of, you know, choppy delivery of the song. It's, I, I love it very much. Um, and what I think is kind of interesting about the song is it does this kind of fourth wall breaking towards the end, right? If you notice the, the end of the song is where they're doing this Sergeant Pepper style, you know, Mm -hmm. thank you for listening, uh, which is a cool lead into the next album. Um, Um, The Majesty's Satanic Request Which a lot of people You know Compared to To kind of being The Stones version Of of Sergeant Pepper Um, Well I mean The the funny thing about
1: Something happened to me yesterday Is it was the equivalent of Bear baiting when you haven't secured the the, the 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 face mask on the bear. Okay? <laughs> like, don't poke the bear until you're sure that the bear is restrained because on that song, it, the song Something Happened to Me Yesterday is basically about their adventures in drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's little, there is literally a moment in the middle of the song where, where Mick actually asks, hey, uh, uh, where's that joint? Mm-hmm. He actually says it in the middle of the song. Something happened to me yesterday. What was the thing that happened to you, I got high. That's what
3: happened to you. Someone says there's something more to pay For sins that you committed yesterday It's really rather trippy But something also trippy something happened to me yesterday He don't really care at all No one sure just what it was All the meaning and the cause Something Um
1: And <clears throat> the stones were playing with fire To, to use a stones-like phrase uh, in 1966 and 1967 because they didn't have that, that sort of you know, official sheen of state protection that were afforded to the Beatles as you know, members of the British Empire and sort of public ambassadors to the world of everything awesome about the United Kingdom. No, the Stones were bad boys, the Stones were rebels and uh, there were a lot of people who were very pissed off about the, the loosening of English morals and saw fit to use the Stones as their punching bag. And when you start advertising out loud on record, uh, not only with that song, but of course with Have You Seen Your Mother and other ones uh, about how dissolute and uh, drug-oriented you are, guess what? The police are going to take an interest in you, which is exactly what happened to the Stones in early 1967, just right after the release of Between the Buttons. And this is uh, the real, in my opinion opinion, at least, in terms of their narrative, the real pivot point in their history. Um it's not talked about. It's not it's not represented on their compilations because the music is so complicated and weird and people have differing opinions on it. But if you really want to know like where the stone story takes a big left turn and they become like the drug rebels, <laughs> this is where this is where it happens. Because um uh somebody publishes an article in the News of the World, yeah. a, a UK tabloid that is now thankfully out of business. Uh yeah, Piers Morgan. My cap to you. You, 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 <laughs> you, you. you knocked that one out of business. Um, and uh, what, what is it? What did they do they do? They, they said, like, you know, UK stars and their, their drug habits, things that will surprise you, you know, tabloid crap. And they accused Mick Jagger of, like, you know, like hanging out of a club and, and smoking a dope and never inviting people back to smoke hash at his place and popping pills. Mick Jagger, who actually is the, the only sober member of the group, uh, realized that, no, that wasn't me. I wasn't there. And he went on television live television in the united kingdom the night it was published and said i'm going to sue the news of the world for libel and libel laws in the united kingdom are very different than they are here in the united states uh so what the news of the world did being the corrupt bastards that they are (laughs) is they said okay the only way we can ever survive this suit because they blundered it wasn't mick jagger who was actually doing that it was brian jones who was the drug addict that was caught you know downing you know benzadrines at blaze and uh it, what they did is they they bought off uh, Keith Richards' chauffeur, his driver, and said that the next time that Mick comes over to party with Keith, you know, you give uh, us a call. And he did, and they called the uh, the local police in Sussex, and the police executed a raid on the house and found drugs, a very small amount of them in fact, actually, ironically enough
0: Only, and, after, only after Harrison left, right? They, were, they made oh, sure the Beatles oh, were gone. Yeah, not
1: only that but, but, the, but, but, the, but the greatest little detail of it is that one of the guys who was still at the party uh, decided to, to really mess with the cops and he put on Bob Dylan's rainy day women, numbers yes. 12 and 35. <laughs> uh, so, so as the police are searching the house, Bob Dylan is just singing, everybody must get stoned uh, uh, but the cops didn't have a sense of humor about it, and they arrested uh, Jagger and Richards. This is a huge scandal. They put them on trial. They convicted them, and then they sent them to jail. They actually threw them in prison in early 1967. This is an enormous thing. Like, you, know, you know, These are the, some of the biggest rock stars in the world mm-hmm. and certainly in the United Kingdom. They go to jail they are get they get let out on appeal uh there's actually surprising public sentiment in favor of uh them being let out i think everybody just thought like oh wait wait a second we were we were all just trying to like scare them this is not what we really we don't really want to throw the stones in prison um uh what comes out from that what comes out from that is, is some of the most confused and controversial music of their career. Uh, this is the Psychedelic Stones era. This is We Love You, a song that they nominally released as their big follow up single in response to all the, the actions that had happened to them as a, as, a, as a quote unquote thank you to their fans. But in, in fact, in reality, it's just a giant F you <laughs> to everyone. When they say we love you, what they really mean is we hate you. Of course, the album that it's inextricably associated with is their "Satanic Majesty's Request," uh, a record. By the way, I'll just make this little factoid known: uh, the title is is completely misunderstood by Americans. Uh, that that their "Satanic Majesty's Request" as a title is a play upon the words that are used in Britain. Passports where it's her Britannic Majesty requests so instead of that it's their Satanic Majesty's request they're making it upon upon how demonized they've been uh, these albums are uh, the most controversial of the Stones entire career a lot of people hate them I'm not going to try to defend Gomper for God's <laughs> sake but I've got a lot of fondness for this weird psychedelic phase of
2: the Stones career what do you guys think um, so Jeff, I think that um, the the single or uh, "We Love You," which you mentioned, which I think um, did did Mick Jagger write that in prison? I think I might have even heard of that. Yeah,
1: he, he started he started writing that one and 2,000 Light Years from Home" while he was sitting in prison.
2: Yeah, so you you, you can tell they were written at the same time because I mean "We Love You" sounds like exactly you know a song that belongs on this album, um, and it's hard to sometimes i want to say it's an underrated album but at the same time it, it does have a like a cult following i think that's developed over the years um but you know not without good reason because there there is a lot of really good material on this album and i think what's cool about it is that you know around this time this was after between the buttons the stones were you know they were basically at you know for that time that was the height of their success and they could have just released uh you know, a safe follow-up between the buttons that does, you know, traditional pop or, or even, you know, rock songs. But they did this, you know, uh, a whole other thing, which, which I think they themselves are now not big fans of. Like, uh, you know, Mick Jagger, he, he called it um, a lot of rubbish. You know, he said they were doing too many drugs, they had too much time in their hands. Um, but, um, you know, some of the stuff I think is some of the most interesting in their entire catalog. Um, so the, the first one that I really like is, is Citadel, it's, uh, it's just a great rock song. It's got a really nice riff from, uh, from Keith Richards. Um, and then, again, Brian Jones, right, with the very interesting, um, you know, the whole host of instruments. And this will be the last album, really, that, that Brian Jones transforms with his, his multi-talented uh, instrumentation. Um, and then 2000 Man, um, again, on, on the A side, uh, is just a beautiful song. It reminds me a lot uh, of A Day in the Life by The Beatles. Um, just the way it it kind of shifts halfway it goes from a kind of a slow ballad uh, into a, a faster hard rock song somewhere halfway through um, and the lyrics themselves are very much ahead of their time uh, don 't you know i 'm a two thousand man, and my kids they just don 't understand me at all. Well, my wife still respects me I really misuse her i 'm having an affair with a random computer. Don't you know- Aside from that, uh, the, I think it was She's a Rainbow was a single as well. Um, I, it's a beautiful song. They, the Stones, they played this live at the show I was at, and it was really nicely done. Well, they brought out a <laughs> Satanic Majesty song for your show. I'm amazed. Yeah, yeah they played She's a Rainbow. Um, and it's, um, I think it's one of the last kind of great songs of their discography. Um, and then, of course, the, the last one that I'll mention that I love, uh, 2,000 Light Years From Home. Uh, this is the Stones doing "Space," right? I think this is the kind of the Pink Floydian territory at the time, uh, which kind of, you know, as, as later influences, it led to uh, a "Space Oddity" from Bowie, and then of course uh, Elton John or, or Bernie Toppin's influences that you know gave us "Rocket Man." Scott, I, you
0: know. As much as it is a uh, thought of as a, a druggy album or a Beatles, uh, you know, response kind of album, I, I, I agree with uh, what Harry kind of said there. Look, this is uh, by and large, I hear more Pink Floyd, early Pink Floyd, on a lot of these songs than, than almost anything else. And um, that's not exactly what I'm looking for from the Rolling Stones. Um, you know, Jeff mentioned Gomper. That's 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 not a real good song. There are some highlights here. I, I like the one Bill Wyman track that he uh, sang lead on in the entire Stones catalog, In Another Land. Uh, very psychedelic, uh, trippy stuff. I think Ronnie Lane, Steve Marriott play on... Uh, on that song, and it's pretty good. It's pretty good. 2,000 Man is probably my favorite song on the album, as as Harry was just explaining. Uh, it's one of those songs, um, it's not as, as pink-fluid as it is. I could hear Ray Davis very easily doing and singing 2,000 Man. It's got that sort of kinks feel to it in the way the lyrics are, are presented. She's a Rainbow is a great, great track. Uh, Nicky Hopkins' piano just shines and shimmers through all that. John Paul Jones of Led Zeppelin does the string arrangement. On She's a Rainbow. Have
3: you seen her dressed in blue? See the sky in front of you.
0: And then 2,000 Light like Years From Home is is pretty good, too. You know, the, the, those tracks in between uh, have never really grown on me. And and part of it is, you know, this is around the time that Andrew Oldham quits uh, b- producing and quits being involved with the Rolling Stones. The story went, they, you know, they got, got around to, in the studio to record their satanic majesty's request and they started playing blues songs over and over and over again until so they essentially um, convinced, forced Andrew to quit and, and they produced their Satanic Majesty's request essentially on their own and they weren't all that happy with the results in the end, I think. No one was there to push them and to say, you know, let's try to do that a little bit better um, and and so the, the lack of having someone in, in control of the sessions, I think, hurts their Satanic Majesty's request a bit, too. I mean, okay, there's no
1: questioning the fact that this album is a total mess. It's a complete mess, and anybody who, who, who feels differently, I present to you, sing this all together, see what happens. <laughs> a ten-minute long instrumental uh, that begins with, again, another like where's that joint moment, and then goes into this weird, long instrumental freak-out, and uh, then only ends finally after eight minutes of bizarreness with the uh, the sing-this-all-together reprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This is a drug-addled album from a psychologically land. Locked bad. Uh, but that to me, again, is kind of why it's so fascinating. The stones always try to keep people at arm's length psychologically. Uh, this is, you know, a band that's about the sort of almost in a a Bowie-like way. It's about the presentation. It's about we're rock and rollers. It's not about autobiography. They didn't like that aspect of things. It wasn't really what they were about. So when they inadvertently let you into their world and let you hear in, in a musical way what it is they're feeling and thinking, things get really fascinating. And this is as close as you're ever going to get to a naked document of a bunch of really messed up people in a really messed up situation letting you hear what it sounds to live their lives and uh you know and i think that that comes out in in, in a really positive and and you know top shelf musical sense and a lot of the music as well uh, i i think you know you guys talked about she's a rainbow and 2000 light years from home both of which are just like fantastic songs i don't think you need to hear like you know 35 seconds of somebody you know you know talking, carnival barking, in the front of She's a Rainbow. Okay, fine. Give me the single edit. Uh, But uh, I'll tell you one that, that, that nobody talks about, that nobody mentions, but that should absolutely be heard by everybody who thinks that the Stones are worth listening to, is The Lantern. I love The Lantern. The Lantern is clearly, in my mind at least, written as an answer song to Jimi Hendrix's Burning of the Midnight Lamp, which came out during the summer of 1967. And you know, here is you know, Mick singing about hey we're going to carry the lantern high this is a weird song production wise you can hear the ghosts of, of Keith's, Keith Richard's guitar you know in the background that have been edited out and they only get potted up later but it has this ghostly 3am 3, 3 in the morning glow that, that actually when you listen to it you put your headphones on and especially if you do it late at night boy this is there's just very few songs that i've ever heard that evoke that true lonely late night feeling i am i am i'm out on some rock in the middle of the ocean and it's three o'clock in the morning and i'm just carrying the lantern high i'm burning the midnight oil um it's a
3: beautiful song Thank you.
1: I also think that, uh, you know, the, you, you said that Wyman's in another land. That's a great song. Two Thousand Man, uh, that one, another one that's been resurrected by Wes Anderson. God, Wes, plundering my soul. <laughs> Stop it, buddy. Um, th- these songs hold up in ways that you don't expect them to. And uh, yes, it's not the stones as the stones are supposed to be. But uh, th- I think the argument that I will make is that, these guys are good songwriters and they're good musicians and that means that they're going to be creating valid art no matter what in any context and, and it's jagger you know who has criticized this album in the past of course but he's the only one who's ever carried a flame for it in the f- in the present uh, he's the one who actually will say these days like yeah you know there are good things on this record and i do sometimes wish we could get back to that creativity and that it- experimentation that you hear on satanic majesties because uh, everything that is immediately coming afterwards as we as we sort of come to the conclusion of our show uh is sort of the beginning of the true classic stones era we've done all this and now we're like entering the true classic <laughs> stones era this is a band with some real longevity for crying out loud but there is something about this era of the group the psychedelic era that they left behind that they're never entirely going to reclaim and that every now and then they made a stab at trying to do but you, know, you, you, you can't go back and repeat old tricks and expect things to sound the same um, and I guess that of course inevitably brings us to uh, uh, what everybody on the planet considers to be the rebirth people wrongly in my opinion consider the sort of mid 60s 66, 67 psychedelic pop stones to be sort of a diversion from uh their true calling in life as the the greatest blues, rock and rock band of all time well i you know, I, I take your disagreement, and that's fine uh but we all di- we all agree on what happens next, which is they uh they uh Bill Wyman and Charlie watts and Brian Jones just happen to be jamming in a basement studio somewhere, and uh the uh, Bill is on the piano uh and uh er, and he just goes plunking out a rhythm it goes da 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 and the keith richards at that moment happened to walk in and hear the jam and he was like hold on go back play that again repeat that i need to hear that and they kept on doing it and he committed it to memory and he ran home and he wrote a song and the name of that song is Jumpin' jack flash
0: song if you didn't hear it before you oh, probably yeah, heard it.
3: yeah.
1: it's got it's it's got its fans
0: number one in the uk number three in the in the u.s uh this is where uh, a very important figure enters the picture too in the form of jimmy miller who would produce uh the stones for the foreseeable future and one of the uh, most uh, noticeable things about jimmy miller is that he knows how to record percussion he knows how to record drums he knows how to make them sound big and bad he knows how to add little things like shakers and uh washboards and th- and, and and things like that to to move it'll al- uh, move the song forward percussively and Jumpin' jack flash one of the things you notice is the way that charlie watts drums sound stronger they're punching right through this song um and and that very beginning um, was recorded in a very specific way. Um, you know, the opening guitar chords to "Jumpin' Jack Flash," uh, Keith Richards uh, recorded them in a, a portable tape recorder, sort of redlining over modulating them through the tape recorder, and then and then using that as a basis. Uh, this is a very low fi tape recorder as a basis to for that, that opening riff from Jumpin' Jack Flash, which is one of the most, I mean, certainly satisfaction, right? But uh, maybe the second most, uh, well, you know, Brown Sugar, third most identifiable uh, Keith Richards riff to begin a song is, is perhaps Jumpin' Jack Flash. Um, you know, those riffs, and then Charlie picks it up, and you just hear the entire band rattling to... Uh, attention and, and really getting it going, the groove is just insistent on jump and jack flash and uh, you know the the chorus it 's all right now in fact it 's a gas. You look back at what happened to the band in the past eighteen months or so between the kind of odd. Uh, album their satanic majesty's request you have the the drug bust in february of 67 you have all that's happening with brian jones kind of fading in and out of the band now with his drug use and uh, if you read about sessions during this time a lot of times brian jones is there but he's you know sitting kind of face down reading a, a book or a magazine while everyone else is recording that's happening you have you have girlfriends being uh, you have, uh, cheated upon by, by band members, and and all this is happening. And, and, and what's the response in Jumpin' Jack Flash? It's all right now. In fact, it's a gas. The, the defiance and sort of throwing off uh, the weight of perhaps all that had happened the past eighteen months with that lyric. Song and uh, I, we'll, we'll talk Street Fighting Man in just a second. That's on on Beggars Bank, but, but also was a, a single in the UK before that album was released. I put up a poll uh, on on Twitter leading up to the episode asking uh, followers, you got to choose one: Jumpin' Jack Flash or Street Fighting Man. And uh, the final total, fifty-five uh, percent said Jumpin' Jack Flash. So that is the uh, that is the choice of of at least the people who follow me on Twitter by, by a small margin over Street Fighting Man. I think
2: that's respectable. I'm I gonna agree with that.
0: It would be my choice, too.
2: Yeah. Um, so the the concert I was at, they actually opened with Street Fighting Man. I had my fingers crossed for Jumping Jack, but um, they did play it towards the end. I mean, you know, both great songs. I, as an opening number, I, I always lean Jumping Jack. Uh, and having said that, so Scott, you mentioned uh, Jimmy Miller came in as a producer. But the, the other, I think, big thing that happened um, at this time was, was Keith Richard discovers open tunings. Uh, and that's really, I think, what makes this song so cool, right? I think it's, its uh, no pun intended, it's instrumental to this riff sounding as cool as it does. Um, and uh, not only uh, is the riff awesome, I think just the the opening words to the song are some of the coolest in, in all of rock music. Uh, I was born in a crossfire hurricane, and I howled at the morning, driving rain. Um, and um, and to I guess to repeat your point that Brian Jones is, is for the most part absent, um, and you know the, I think that's kind of what the song you know misses in a sense. It's it's a lot more of a straightforward rock and roll song now. Um, the you know the only instrument that it does have uh, you know aside from the traditional rock instruments is uh, is mar- maracas. Uh, and if you listen closely, you can hear the you know the kind of the shaking of the maracas as as, as the song goes out. Um, and I mean, you know, what else, you know, what is there to say? I mean, it's, it's one of the, the legendary riffs. I don't know where it ranks as far as riffs go. Cause Keith, yeah, so many, but it, it's, you know, I think it'll forever kind of remain as, as one of the legendary, um, you know, Rolling Stone songs. As far as the B-side, Child of the Moon, I, I don't have much to say about that. Maybe Jeff, do you, does, does that excite you at all,
1: Child of the Moon? Oh, it, it's, it excites me immensely. But uh, before I get to that, I just want to point out some stuff about. First of all, I will dispute the argument that Brian Jones is somehow less noticeable on Beggars Banquet and in the Stones' 1968 era than he was before. He's still there. That basic instrumental ensemble is still there. He plays on almost every single song on Beggars Banquet, and he makes important contributions to each of them. And it's uh, it's one of those things where where the legend has sort of overtaken the reality, especially if you're like me and you have all the bootlegs, and so you hear the, <laughs> the studio conversation and you hear the multiple takes. Um, <clears throat> but drummer Jack Flash, the, the point that you made, Harry, I think is correct: is that it's a much simpler song in every way than anything that they had been doing on Satanic Majesties or during the uh, you know the sort of the pop psychedelic era of the '66, '67. Uh, the way you can most confirm that is that it doesn't have a middle aid There there's mm-hmm. no like it's not like 19th nervous breakdown where they throw in that like oh who's to blame the girl's just and say nope it's just verse chorus verse chorus solo with an organ simple organ then back to verse chorus. It's just the bare bones of what a great rock song is supposed to be. And uh it doesn't need anything more than that. It would be i mean imagine how stupid it would sound if somebody tried to insert a second part into jumpy jack flash for god's sake no it doesn't need it they rediscovered something um and they'd obviously made a conscious decision to move back to this sort of kind this sort of music i'll bet they were influenced by the late 60s british blues boom uh you know fleetwood mac uh you know, Led Zeppelin, the later Yardbirds era, a lot of bands that were coming out around this time uh, sort of sprouting up as a reaction to the the heavy psychedelic whimsy of the Summer of Love in 67. Uh, but what a fantastic song. And the B-side is the sort of farewell to that whole era. It's a song called Child of the Moon, and it was written actually during the later Satanic Majesty's sessions. I think everybody agrees that it's a tribute to Marianne faithful, who was a, a great artist in her own right. And was Mick Jagger's girlfriend at that time, uh, famously a famous couple and in, in rock legend. And, uh, if that is true then it's a fantastic tribute because the uh, the best part of this song is is the the winsome soprano saxophone remember brian jones can play an instrument he wants he's playing soprano sax on this he also plays it on the beatles uh, you know my name look up the number recorded at the same era by the way um but on child of the moon it has that 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 Purity, that innocence, that also is sort of beguiling and seductive, and suggests that you know this is a, a woman of, of 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 both you know innocence, but also intelligence and knowledge and glamour, knowledge of the world, and she will seduce you. Uh, what a fantastic song! Just lost as a B-side, it's on more hot rocks. They put it out on the album. It's on the Gur. Compilation, if you've ever seen that big one with the gorilla on its face, <laughs> but a great lost B side that should be appreciated. Oh! Course brings us to Beggar's Banquet, which is, you know, hey, what do you say about Beggar's Banquet? The beginning of the Stones classic era. Um, and uh an album that everybody accused of ripping off the Beatles because of its white cover, but of course it actually had the the original bathroom cover, which is now the one that we all know yes. as kids. Um uh I'm just going to actually let it go because at this point, what the heck do you say about Sympathy for the Devil or Street Fighting Man or Salt of the Earth or Stray Cat Blues or an album that is in its own way carries on the continuity of the instrumental ensemble on Satanic Majesties? If you go back and you listen to the unoverdubbed versions of those songs, which you can get on bootleg, you will hear a through line. But in its structure and it's you know complete tribute to blues and Mm -hmm. hard rock is as different as it could conceivably be what do you add to the legacy of beggar's banquet
2: um so it's i mean needless to say it's a it's a fantastic i think country blues rock album It's, it's a mixture of all those things um sympathy for the devil right i mean It's like trying to talk about the dark side of the moon right it's a song that everybody's heard it's a song that everybody knows uh the only thing i'll baby say is it has um it trades places with jumping jack flash for you know my favorite way to open a song right you know that one i you know talked about before here here jagger you know he's singing please allow me to introduce myself i'm a man of wealth and taste and from those first two you know two lines you know what you're in for you know you know it's going to be a cool song it's i think it's maybe you know, you could consider it one of the first kind of truly epic songs where the Stones, they, they take on, you know, larger themes themselves, you know, they're, they're singing about, you know, Russia and the um, the revolution, uh, you know, as far as the themes they explore in the lyrics, um, I think that makes it a, a very interesting song. Yeah. Aside from the, the you know the thing about girls and the usual stuff.
1: Hey, uh, you know what? I'm I'm going to jump in here and I'll tell you yeah. that I don't even I don't even like sympathy for the devil that much. I'm kind of tired of it. I also think Jagger is way out of his depth lyrically on yeah. that, that song. You know, he 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 was given a copy of Master and Margarita uh, by Bulgakov, um by Marianne Faithfull, his girlfriend at the time, and uh, of course this is what he ends up writing. And I don't know, I. I I don't hate it. How could you ever hate Sympathy for the Devil? But ironically enough, it's one of the very few songs on this album that I'm kind of done with. Eh. Uh, Sorry. Sorry to be the downer, you know?
2: Um, I think, I mean, every album has one, you know, a song that's that's played all the time. Um, you know, to me, for for a while, I knew Sympathy for the Devil. I didn't know the rest of Beggar's Banquet. Um, and then when I sat down to listen to the whole album, you know, it was another one of those, like, wow, I, you know, there's so much to love here. Um, Jigsaw Puzzle I, is very kind of Bob Dylan-esque. Um, I, I love a lot the, the, the lyrics, they not make, you know, they're kind of all over the place, but they... I think they they take a lot of the dylan influence but they try to use a lot of metaphors and paint all this imagery you know to kind of create a a larger sense than the song itself and i think jigsaw puzzle is you know some would argue it's a minute too long or something but i i personally i'm i'm a big fan of that one uh street fighting man uh of course everyone loves it's um you know it's their kind of their version of the beatles revolution Uh, the one like revolution, I think here, the stones are a lot more, you know, ambivalent or on the fence when it comes to the way you want to revolt, you know, as far as violence, you know, they, you know, in, uh, in contrast to, if you talk about destruction, you can count me out here, Jagger, you know, he's screaming, I'll shout and scream. I'll kill the King. I'll rail at all his servants. Uh, and then many years after that, of course he was knighted, right? So, (laughs) um, And then Stray Cat Blues, right? This is, again, the Stones version you could say of, well, she was just 17 and you know what I mean, huh? I think Mick Jagger said this was inspired by heroin by the Velvet Underground. Um, And, um, you know, again, like a lot of their other, you know, incredibly vulgar and misogynistic music, um, the melody and music is just so good. You know, it's just an an irresistible, you know, track to to just sing along to and, and to bop your head. Um, and I mean, this one might get the title for the, the most vulgar. I think this even makes brown sugar seem tame, right? I mean, they're singing <laughs> uh, about, you know, lusting f- for sex with an underage groupie. Um,
1: I mean, this is he going to say, I don't care if you're only 13 years old? <laughs> That's mine in the song. <laughs>
0: You know, Beggar's Banquet, I think, is a bookend with Rolling Stones Number Two, and that Rolling Stones Number Two is very much this electric blues uh, album, very very well played electric blues. A lot of covers, right? Beggar's Banquet is uh, you know Janker Richard uh, J- Jagger Richards originals, and has a, a, an acoustic blues feel to it. And yes, there's there's country thrown in there, and, and there are some rockers too, like Street Fighting Man, but. If you listen to Beggars Banquet, I think the instrument that that comes that you come away with most is Richard's acoustic guitar. It, it's recorded very close. It's very loud in your head. Uh, you can hear him picking those strings, uh, like on uh, like on Dear Doctor, um, like on Salt of the Earth. You really hear that acoustic guitar ring. Or on
1: Prodigal Son, or prodigal son. Factory
0: Girl, right? Yeah. Um, and and so I think that really defines Beggars Banquet is sort of the. The, the end of this progression from the electric blues that we heard on Rolling Stones number two through that middle era into what we have now, which is uh, more of an acoustic blues feel on, on Beggar's Banquet. I actually am with Jeff. Sympathy is one of the, I was telling friends before the concert, it's, Sympathy is the, one of the, uh, you know, the, 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 the songs in the Stones canon that I would not be uh, sad to miss it, that they played live. Of course they did because they do it every show, but um, I am I, I usually start Beggar's Banquet at track two, to be honest, <laughs> with okay. No Expectations. Um, and, and, and that just gorgeous slide from, from Brian Jones, uh, he showed up on, on No Expectations. Jones' slide is so good on No Expectations. Uh, but the, the you know, that feeling of loneliness is just palpable on No Expectations uh, with the lyrics and the way it's it's together. Our
3: love was like the water the
0: Jigsaw puzzle um, is a little repetitive. I think it almost goes six minutes. Um, they, they don't do a whole lot with the, the melody uh, throughout, but uh, but I do like Jigsaw Puzzle, Straight Clad Blues. Um, Harry talked about, it. and I, I really have always liked Salt of the Earth, even though the, the lyrics are, um, you know, they, they played it at the nine eleven tribute as you know this hey uh, hard-working people the salt of the salt of the earth, and uh, it's not really a sentiment the Stones have ever mined. <laughs> <laughs> and it was somewhat, I don't want to say inappropriate, but you know, this, the Soul of the Earth is almost with a wink and a, and a smile, right? Delivered from, from the Rolling Stones.
1: Dude, I mean, there's literally that part where was like I look into these faceless crowds. Yeah. You know, these blue and black uh, whites. It doesn't seem real to me. It all seems so strange. And then, they the, you know, the, what I love about Soul of the Earth is that there's this image that you get of these like very rich, Aristocrats sitting in their chateaus, mm-hmm. you know, raising a glass of wine to the common people. <laughs> they don't really seem like common people themselves, do they? Right. They start talking about the stay-at-home voters and the ragtaggy hobos. It's it's so obviously a, a joke. Uh, uh Mick Jagger is making at the expense of the people, saying like you have no power and you never will and he's admitted as much uh, as recently which is kind of why when they played it at 9-11 I was just like oh, oh, you know yeah, like yeah. it's one thing for David Bowie to sort of like turn heroes from like ironic to sincere <laughs> but you can't really retrieve salt of the earth from that that complete you know you know you know very you caustic and bitter, angry kind of working class rant that it is. You can't turn it into a populist anthem. Yeah,
0: the song itself, though, I do, I do love this again. The way it's recorded, the sound of the, that acoustic guitar and the sound of Charlie Watts' drums. Up mm-hmm. front in the chorus, over the uh, over over the vocals and guitar during the chorus, and then you have him just explode with a fill and uh, and get joined in as as the choir sort of fades in toward the finale and the tempo doubles uh, toward the back end of Salt of the Earth. Uh, it's a, it's a great way to close Beggars Banquet and and really uh, kind of that era. Uh, Let It Bleed is is a, is, a, is a continuation for Beggars Banquet, but again I see Beggars Banquet as sort of putting a cap uh, on this very early era of the Rolling Stones.
1: banquet i i go back and forth on this i say what is the rolling stones greatest album not their most underrated album not their most overrated album what's the album that they have that is the most cohesive album experience the one that if i want to put it on i want to hear the most it's either this or it's let it bleed i think today at least it's this it's Beggar's Banquet, even though I just, you know, I, I, t- I told you that I didn't much care for Sympathy for the Devil. Well, it's still a good introductory track. This album is the album where you, you witness the creative re- reconstruction and resurgence of Keith Richards, who had, you know, after the arrest, after the busts, after the, the ceasing of touring from the Stones, had gone into a hibernation lost interest in playing guitar. He discovers the open tunings. He discovers the old blues sides. And now he's back in the saddle again. And every single song could, if it were taken on its own, taken as an individual piece, feel like a minor production. Like Dear Doctor for example. Mm-hmm. Now, if you just listen to that, if that was a single or like a random track on a random album, you'd be like, whoa, whoa, what is this crap? Sounds like an outtake. In the context of Beggar's Banquet, Dear Doctor is absolutely necessary. And I love it. Every time Mick Jagger talks about being saved from a marriage to his ugly cousin because his ugly cousin ran away with his even uglier cousin. I love that song. And I love Brian Jones is playing that country fried harmonica in the background. Parachute woman. Is a song that is like literally a, almost like a dream it, it, it feels like a dream groove like it was downloaded from keith richard's brain onto the tape without anybody actually having to play a note it's just a straight up gut bucket blues doesn't even have any real like uh lyrics of note um and yet it's essential to the feel of beggar's banquet which as you say is a country blues album despite the big spotlight tracks and you know it's funny that we haven't even talked about one of the biggest of them all which is Street Fighting Man Uh, this is the song you know Harry mentioned it briefly talking about it sort of maybe a a companion to Revolution Um, they came out uh, around the exact same time So I don't think that, that one was necessarily Influenced by the other This actually was originally written as a song about a Drunken wife beating Indian yeah. uh, And it was called Pay Your Dues And then uh, once Jagger realized That the music was so great he thought to himself Well crap I, I, I better Try to come up with something a little more interesting Than that and so what he Came up with is a song that was influenced By the rioting that he'd seen Outside the, the United States Embassy in London um in march of 1968 and it is a song of uh incredible line stepping he he walks a knife's edge you know he he clearly is calling for violent revolution and they have a right to be angry given what the establishment had done to them over the past year or so uh but then of course he had you know he he backs down in the chorus say wow well, uh, what can a poor boy do except to sing in a rock and roll band um but the hilarious part of it is how This song should have no right to succeed musically because it's based on the weirdest combination of instruments that you could (laughs) ever expect from a rock song. You've got acoustic guitar, bass, drums. Okay, fine. Oh, but also you have tambura and sitar. You have these Indian instruments, which Brian Jones insisted on adding to the song. and, And it must have seemed like a perversely inappropriate idea at the time, but it ends up working beautifully. Because when you combine that with what Nikki Hopkins, who's the studio player that would end up kind of becoming an informal member of the band at this point, uh, is playing on piano, it's just it, – it swells. It's like an ocean of
2: sound that almost ends up exploding into your speakers. Jeff, um, um if I'm not mistaken, uh, Charlie Watts, like if he's playing like a small practice piano drum kit. Yeah,
1: there, there, there are two sets of drums on that. So he's playing one drum kit in the background on, on the stuff that's done on the Phillips tape recorder. And then he overdubs another larger drum sound in the studio. You've got two sets of drums on that song. Lots of studio tricks, which is the other thing about this. This is Keith Richards' creative renaissance in terms of studio production. Then he. this is the point where he becomes obsessed with layering guitars, layering sounds. He becomes like the George Martin of the Rolling Stones. Hear it even on songs as simple as "Factory Girl," which is a song nobody talks about. It's a, it's got a Dave Mason of Traffic on you know the weird um, flute like thing in the background, uh, but you've got all these very subtle guitar overdubs in what is essentially an acoustic song. I will say one other thing about. Uh, Beggar's Banquet, which is to me the best album of this era, even better than Let It Bleed, uh, although Let It Bleed is is basically co-equal with it. Um, I love Prodigal Son. uh, The only cover on this record, uh, from now on, the Stones would be including basically one or two covers on each of their albums, sort of as to say, like, yeah, we can do the old masters as well as we do our own stuff. And Prodigal Son is amazing and terrifying. It's a story uh, it's of course the song, the biblical story of the prodigal son, but it recasts it in this weird, weird way, where you get the point of view of the prodigal son himself, and where we, you understand that he's not really repentant. He he's just he you know, went out and blew all his money, and he's lazy, and he doesn't want to work. He doesn't want to you know shovel crap in someone's barnyard, so he just comes home, and isn't it nice to bask in the love of his family? Ooh that's a weird weird song and it's just a beautiful tune as well and uh, very few people ever understand like what comes out of that tune lyrically the way that Mick Jagger sings it uh, because they just get carried away with the sound
3: oh,
2: However,
1: again, we must finally conclude this episode with a discussion of Oh, geez. Uh, I thought it was tough enough to talk about Beggar's Banquet. So (laughs) what do you say about the album that stumped Grail Marcus? I don't know if you ever read Grail Marcus's review of Let It Bleed. It embarrasses him. It embarrasses everyone because nobody knew how to talk about this album in its time. I don't even know how to talk about this album uh, in 2019, except to say that, you know, it's right up there with Beggar's Banquet uh, as one of, what, the most perfect records ever released? It has some of the most terrifyingly perfect songs in the history of rock and roll music on it. Uh, It's a good record, and you should hear it. That's my review.
0: Let It Bleed is um likely my vote for greatest Rolling Stones album. And you know, the thing about the Stones is I think unless I'm misreading the room, I, I I don't think there really is a consensus best, right? I mean maybe Beggar's Banquet like Jeff was arguing, maybe it's Let It Bleed like I'm I'm about to argue, maybe it's Sticky Fingers, maybe it's Exile. Uh I, I don't think anyone's going to pick uh, you know, Dirty Work, but but perhaps uh, you know, Some Girls has its defenders. I, but but Let It Bleed, man, I tell you, every time I hear it, and I hear it a lot because I love it, I think it's better. I mean, really, as good as it is, I think it's better just about every single time I I listen to it. And, you know, you, you start with Gimme Shelter, which I would argue is probably the greatest rock and roll song of all time. Uh, Gimme Shelter, from, from the very beginning, paints... Its sense of worry and dread with just the instrumentation forget the lyrics and and, and and Mary Clayton and rape and murder and war you get all of that just from the opening 30 seconds or so that that shaky shimmering guitar the ooze piled on top uh, and and, and it, it's just amazing there there is so much pent-up uh, you know um, Stuff happening in Gimme Shelter And it's finally released You know Gimme Shelter the actual name of the song Is only mentioned one time Right toward the tail end of the song So everything sort of builds The tension builds all the way to the end of the song And one of the key parts of Gimme Shelter Is that that middle section When you have that harp That leads directly into Keith's uh, solo and, and and that portion of the song kills me every single time, and it leads directly into, of course, the part that kills me, too, and everyone else, Mary Clayton's uh, lead female solo, raped, murder, her voice breaking, shaking as she belts it out. You can hear the band members, uh, you know, reacting. in the background, if you've heard the the vocal track, to to how amazing she she does her part in Gimme Shelter, the impending doom, the bad stuff around the corner, all of that late 60s kind of being wrapped up into one song, uh, and and just that muscular percussion that Jimmy Miller knows how to record. Low-tune kick, low-tune snare. Um, Man, it conveys everything with just the musical track.
1: Isn't Uh, it weird that, like... Altamont happened after this song was recorded and right. not before it. Like, right. the song predicted it. This song predicted huh. the end of the 60s. This song predicted rape and murder, bad, bad things, the end of the hippie dreams and the end of the hippie ideals. And, of course, it was really written because Keith Richards was angry that Mick Jagger was sleeping with his girlfriend. <laughs> That's where the song comes from. He wrote it in the car when he was, like, convinced that Mick Jagger was sleeping with his girlfriend because, right. uh... uh uh, you know, Nick rag had cast him opposite her in the film performance. That's true. That's a true story. And yet, no, no, he's literally subliminally channeling the cultural forces of a decade into one piece of music.
0: Yep. And, and then my favorite parts too. The you know the bump, 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 crash. Uh, Charlie on the drums. Uh, that repeated theme through "Give Me Shelter." Again, I, I think it's the it's the best rock song ever made on one of the best rock albums ever made. <laughs> Spend, uh, my time on every single song though I could um live with me I love live with me you know Keith is on bass it's really a complicated uh, bass line especially toward the end of the song for, for for Keith who's not a you know natural bassist he's a guitar player Bobby Key's sax solo on live with me is fantastic Leon Russell plays on piano it's uh, Mick Taylor's on guitar one of the two songs he appears on uh, let it bleed is, is live with me it's the, one of the first times you hear Keith and and, uh, and, and Mick Taylor trading licks during the course of a song and that final verse full of debauchery with the butler and everyone it's just it's a crazy song but I I just love the rhythm it's just such a groove on Live With Me I adore Monkey Man. I know Jeff does, too. I will will leave a lot for him on on that track. But Monkey Man is perhaps the first or second most overlooked track in the Rolling Stones' entire discography. Uh, The title track is fantastic. You Can't Always Get What You Want, little tune called You Can't Always Get What You Want closes things out. And I was thinking about that. You know, when we had Charlie on the show doing the Beatles, and I think he was talking about Hey Jude. And he said, you know, it's a hymn. Really, it's just a hymn. And, and this is the Rolling Stones version of of a hymn. It's a little more, uh, uh, you know, in your face because there's a freaking choir on it, um, you know, and a French horn to start things off. And just this angelic guitar intro to You Can't Always Get What You Want. It, it's uh, it's fantastic. You no know, Charlie Watts on You Can't Always Get What You Want. Jimmy kind of booted yeah, him from the Jimmy chair. Jimmy
1: Miller's playing <laughs> it because Charlie couldn't get the groove down. Right.
0: Uh, and, and so Jimmy's playing on, uh, plays drums on You Can't Always Get What You Want. Um, yeah. Uh, and I'll leave some 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 meat on the bones for you guys. But uh, you know, every song, every song, even "Country Honk," which is, you know, the the original version of "Honky Tonk Woman." Th- this is the way they originally had visioned envisioned "Honky Tonk Woman." This kind of hillbilly stomp with a fiddle. Uh, and then they redid it uh, for the single which was released before Let It Bleed in July of 69 into what everyone knows as Honky Tonk Woman with the cowbell beginning and the, and the Keith and Nick Taylor guitars weaving in and out but uh, even Country Honk is, is a great version, uh, the original version of that song there's, there's, I, I, I literally have no criticisms of the album, none, none at all
1: Alright Harry, I want you to explain to us why this is the Rolling Stones'
2: worst album <laughs> <laughs> Well this is the part I was waiting for um, uh, undercover, of course, is their, their finest work. So, um, I you know I agree with you, Scott I think this this is my favorite Rolling Stones album. I that could change depending on you know the time of the year or something. You know, some days I might say, "Beggars Are Exile," but um, you know, right now it's "Let It Bleed." Um, you know, you covered you know "Give Me Shelter" thoroughly. There's not too much I can add. I you know what I love about the song is just how it paints this perfect aura. Um, you know. The The really cool part that I find is the you know, Mary Clayton, uh, I think they called her up, you know, midnight, this, you know, pregnant lady just comes down into the studio and just lays down these, you know, haunting, just amazing, amazing vocals um, on the song that, you know, really just make the song. I think without her contributions, is, it would not have been the same song. Um, uh, let's see what else we have here. Um, I mean, Love in Vain, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, almost a, th- a throwaway song, just a second track on the album, but it's an amazing song. Um, and the you know the one thing I love about this album is the the metaphors they throw in there. So on um, on Country Honk, right? This, this, uh, Scott said the original version of Honky Tonk Woman, which I which has grown on me. And I think Honky Tonk, I'm a little tired of. I think sorry Honky Tonk Woman, I'm you know I think I've heard way too many times. I think I would now lean towards saying I think Country Honk is the better version of it. I kind of like it more now. Um, and it's just got these great lines. It's like, um, the lady, then I'll dress me up in roses. She blew my nose, and she blew my mind. Well, I mean, um, the, blue, the blow your nose part is cocaine, clearly, of right? <laughs> but, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, exactly. That's that's what I love about, you know, they had these kind of restrictions on their lyrics, right? They had to keep it PG-13. And so that forced them to come up with these amazing, very clever word plays. Um, you know, and then like on, um, on Let It Bleed, right, he says... Um, and there, always, there will always be a space in my parking lot when you need a little Coke and sympathy.
1: Well, okay. I got to say, but by, by the end of Let It Bleed, we are well into the realm of pure smut. Oh, yes, he's Like yes. saying, like, you can cream all over me. Oh, yeah. Mean, yeah, 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 but, yeah. Before Mick, we get there. <laughs> Mick, Mick sort of lets his guard down at the end of that
2: one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sorry. But keep going, man yeah um, let's see. Uh, you got the silver is' one of my favorite songs on this record. I think just the way it was recorded the production, the recording of it is, is great. It sounds like Keith Richards is in your living room when you're listening to this. Um, and there's an outtake where Mick Jagger does the vocals. Um, and I, I prefer the, Mick, uh, the sorry, the Keith Richards version. I think I don't know what it is that makes it a Keith song, but you know, if you compare the two, um, you know to me, this is just a, a quintessential Keith Richards song. Hey! And then Monkey Man, um, Jeff, I'll, I'll let you, you know, tackle that with more depth, but it's, I think it's definitely a sleeper hit on the album. It's one that it kind of gets lost amidst the, you know, it's, it's, peer, it's, it's amazing peers here. I mean, stuff like, you know, You Can't Always Get What You Want, Give Me Shelter, they kind of steal the limelight, but um, just, just the piano intro, I think, is one of the most amazing things on a Stones recording. Um, and then uh, You Can't Always Get What You Want is, of course... Uh, one of the greatest songs to close an album. I mean, the beautiful uh, choir that comes in, and just the way Mick Jagger delivers the vocals, and the, the entire sense of uh, of kind of grandness, you know, throughout the songs. I think is is beautiful. As, and as, as you said, Scott, there's n- there's nothing here that I can criticize. I mean, Midnight Rambler is is, is beautiful. I think the only two songs with the Brian Jones um, you know credit on on the personnel are Midnight Rambler and You Got the Silver so this is kind of really the end of brian jones i think you know somewhere between beggars and, and let it bleed is where mick taylor kind of takes over the band um so yeah no you know absolutely no criticism I, it's a it's it's a perfect rock album um the- go ahead jeff the miracle of let it bleed is the
1: fact that it sounds so coherent and so completely focused despite being recorded in circumstances that are just as chaotic and totally sprawling as like their satanic majesty's request, or, you know, one of those early American like albums, like 12 by five, this thing took over a year to complete. And then this is going to become a trend with the stones. Actually, they're going to really start taking their sweet time in the studio. Um, not only that, but of course, this is the moment where you have to point out that this is—you know—this is where Brian Jones leaves the band. You know, it had been hugely alienated from the, the group as far back as 1967 when Keith Richards stole his girlfriend, Anita Pallenberg, and you know they ended up becoming an item for several years. They have several kids together, um, uh, but then musically, when the Stones go back to the blues, ironically enough, that leaves jones who founded this group as a blues band uh but he was left out on an island by the return to the roots rock stuff because he'd left that behind and he was now more into exploring other sonic textures and things that was how he made himself relevant to the group so when they went back to the beggar's banquet rootsy style <clears throat> even though he gets his licks in there he gets them in in strange ways like playing mellotron on stray cat blues which is actually really good but mm-hmm. weird um and then he's barely there on Let It Bleed. And then halfway through the sessions, they basically said, listen, it, you know, you got to leave. You know, we're asking you to quit. And he agreed to do it, too. It was a mutual decision. Uh, he probably was not in a great place, you know, in terms of his mental health and certainly in terms of his drug health. But the other issue is that they wanted to tour. And he was in right. no position, no state to tour whatsoever uh, because he's just, you know, you know kind of a basket case at that point so uh, what do they do they go and find a guy uh, from John Miles Blues Breakers which is the farm team for great league guitarists in the British 1960s apparently and uh, that guy's name is Mick Taylor the irony, though, is that Let It Bleed doesn't really bear either of their influences. This is the weirdest album, and yet the most coherent album of the Stones' career. There is, is there is not one single song on this record where five members of the band, mm-hmm. which is to say the four guys and you know you know you know Mick and Keith and Bill and Charlie plus any guitarist. Uh, you know whether it's Mick or Brian Jones, are playing at once. The only one is on Midnight Rambler, where uh, Brian plays congas, I think. And and you know a shiny nickel to you if you can tell me what that conga <laughs> contribution. I, I've never been able to hear it myself. I'm, I'm not even convinced that it exists. But yeah, this is this is an album where they're playing like almost fragmentarily, and yet it comes together so big because. Uh, this is where Keith is at his greatest. He's not crippled by drugs yet. That's going to become a big problem. We'll talk about that in our next episode. Uh, you know, they're over their their legal difficulties. This is the Beatles are falling apart. All of their other competitors are experiencing. You know, it's it's the end of an era, and, and there's a lot of eclipse going on. But the Stones are actually moving to a greater strength and a greater level of achievement than they had ever been before. And it's a miracle that even in these circumstances that you get an album where Love in Vain, Love in Vain is not a minor track at all. I have to mm-hmm. disagree with you, Harry. It's, that's They found that Robert Johnson song on a new trench of Robert Johnson recordings that started circulating in 1968. And uh, they immediately said, okay, well, let's try this. Well, Keith, of course, is trying it because he's doing it with his open tunings. And how do they manage to, to slow it down turn it into almost a country blues that made it's very different from the johnson version if you hear that um and you know they get i think Ry cooter is playing on it yeah and they they recast it and they own it they reclaim it they make it their own the country honk i, I agree with you i prefer it to the honky tonk women i just love the jimmy rogers nanny feel of that but um you know, this is an album where the last two songs do tend to overshadow everything else. And I'll I'll say this about Monkey Man: I, I I've never understood why this isn't on every greatest hits album the Rolling Stones ever put out. If you could put out a Rolling Stones album with two songs, you could put out Satisfaction and Monkey Man. There you go. You've got your two great hits. That's good. That's what you're going to do. I don't understand why people don't know it and celebrate it. It wasn't even played live, I believe, until the Voodoo Lounge Tour in 1995. uh, With Nicky Hopkins, again, on that piano, that ominous opening piano, and that incredible grinding, snarling, snapping Keith Richards riff, uh, the only thing that could make it better is a fantastic lyric which guess what mick jagger supplies when he has that one of the great couplets of all time i hope we're not too messianic or a trifle too satanic oh we just love to play the blues that's the rolling stones there one lyric there you you got them you got them all um just a, a magnificent song and i don't understand why people don't celebrate it more The last thing I'll say is that You Can't Always Get What You Want is probably my single favorite Rolling Stone song of all time, even though I just praised Monkey Man. All <laughs> these two are going to make my top five. Uh, you Can't Always Get What You Want. Yes, Requiem to Yuppie Dreams. Yes, it was in the Big Chill. Yes, Donald Trump uses it as his ironic-seeming play-out music at every rally. Yes, it's almost been absorbed and and co-opted by every cultural moment of the last 50 years get past all of that Uh, what you have is just the most uh, the most warm and welcoming music of the Stones entire career giving you hard won wisdom hard bitten knowledge you know talking about how you're going to go down to the demonstration to get your fair share of abuse uh, and how you know you're going to you know or you're going to stand in line and you're going to sing your song to Mr. Jimmy. You're going to deal with these problems and, and you can't always get what you want, but you just at the end of the day, you're going to get what you need. Is it about something universal or did Jagger just write it about his girlfriend? Nobody is entirely sure and it doesn't even matter because the whole point is that you can generalize it out to anything you want it to mean. And when you hear the Stones jamming with a veritable cast of thousands, Al Cooper is on mm-hmm. uh, piano and he's on French horn. Jim Miller's playing the drums. You've got the London Bach choir singing in the background. You got everybody just playing away and you finally feel that this is a band whose entire art form has sort of so at the, Up until this point, the entire idea of the Stones has been to, to put themselves a little bit above you, a little bit beyond you. They are the artists. They're the rock stars. You are the observers. When you listen to you can't always get what you want, they're welcoming you into their world, and they're telling you something personal about themselves and about yourself, which is why it's the greatest and most universal song of their entire career. I
3: went down to the jail- Jimmy oh, Man, did he look Pretty ill? We decided That we would Have a soda My favorite Flavor Cherry I sung my phone To Mr. Jimmy Yeah And he said one word to me And that was "day." I said to him Bye.
0: that's where we have to leave it this time, as Let It Bleed comes to a close. Part two of the Rolling Stones will pick up just afterwards. And uh, that means we've come to the point of the episode where we, uh, the hosts and our guests, give you two albums and five songs. God help us. You're going to do this. Harry Kachatrian. Uh, You can find him at Harry1T6 on Twitter. Also his work at The Daily Wire. Harry, your two albums and your five songs.
2: Wow, what a task! Uh, so for my, you know, the two albums, um, if it was possible to cheat, uh, I would tell everyone out there to go and buy their three CD London Year collection of singles. Um, but as far as uh, you know, readily available single album debut releases, my two albums are going to have to be their very first debut album. Um, I think it's a it's a perfect sense of where they started and you know what tools they were working with in the very beginning, uh, and of course, let it bleed. I think they're, you know, they're 1969, what everything they had done until then, what it all built up to, which to me, I think is, is their best album. Um, and again, that's not to say that the stuff in between isn't good. It's fantastic, but I have to pick two. So that, those are the two. <laughs> um, so five songs, um, a, again, a, a very hard task, but so the first one I'm going to pick, I'm going to try to, you know, just kind of space them out. Um, so, to kind of wrap up the early period of the Stones, I'm going to go with um, 19th Nervous Breakdown. Uh, know Jeff loves the song as well. It's, 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 a, it's a perfect pop, you know, rock, Stone song. Everything about it, um, I think every single note, every second of the track, uh, to me, is perfect. Uh, the next song, I didn't get a chance to talk about the song too much, uh, but it's their single off of Aftermath, uh, Painted Black. Um, this is this was the first song I learned how to play on a guitar from the Stones catalog, uh, one of my favorite songs. Um, and as you guys said, it, you know, as far as being a joke track, um, it's it's just a great song. Um, I think the you know the drumming on it is great. The, the the sitar, right? I think you know a huge credit to Brian Jones is making you know weird instruments like the sitar, um, just cool, making them rock and roll instruments. Uh, and he'd do the same again on my next song, uh, Ruby Tuesday, right, where Brian Jones plays, I believe, the recorder. Right, he, how do you manage to make the recorder cool? Right, you put it in Ruby <laughs> Tuesday as Brian Jones. Um, another perfect, beautiful song. Um, next, um, off of Let It Bleed, um, I want to pick some country. So I'm going to go with uh, Country Honk. Um, I think one thing that amazes me about the Stones is their ability to play so many genres. Uh, and country is one of them. I mean, and you know, a, a, more of a part two song, but "Sweet Virginia," you know, like how do they, how do they do country so well? Uh, I think it's something that really amazes me. And the country honk, I think, is a good example of that from this era. Uh, and the last song um, is "You Can't Always Get What You Want." You know, I wish I could pick, you know, ten or fifteen songs, but you know, I can't always get what I want. Apparently. And so this, this is uh, of course as Jeff already explained. As, as you have gone through, is, is a beautiful song. Every second of it is is put to good use. Um it paints a beautiful picture the lyrics the, the instruments the music um yeah, I can't get enough of the song
0: all right uh, so for my two albums uh i'm will say <laughs> You can't actually buy this. Rolling Stones number two is uh, is on my list. It (laughs) it is available though. Amazon uh, Music Unlimited. You can you can you have to search for it specifically. You can search for the UK versions of albums of the of these albums. You can search for Rolling Stones number two. You should. It's worth it. Uh, And Let It Bleed, um, which I just described as nearly a perfect album. So of course it's on the list. Rolling Stones number two and Let It Bleed. So for my five songs, in order to make this uh, a little bit easier or a little bit more manageable what uh, i have just decided unilaterally because uh, i can i'm the host I, I i'm just i'm just throwing out the songs you likely have heard right the songs that are on hot rocks the songs that are on the radio constantly i'm assuming you've heard some of these songs and i just want to give you the opportunity to hear some things that so your picks you are
1: satisfaction yeah. get off of my cloud and mothers are painted black
0: right? and jump a jack flash don't forget yes, yes right uh, so songs that you might not have heard from from this era the brian jones era that th- you should from rolling stones number two down the road piece um is is just fantastic keith richard's recording his guitar his, his chuck berry guitar with chuck berry in the room uh it's one to check out
3: Call Charlie, my boy, you know, remember that rubber leg, boy. Mama cooking chicken, fried and bacon grease. Come on, along, boys, it's just down a road
0: of Um From Aftermath, I am waiting. Uh, is the best song on the album, and uh, if you're a Wes Anderson fan, you may have heard that one previously, but others perhaps not. So I am waiting us here from Between the Buttons, uh, Backstreet Girl. Uh, Backstreet Girl is fantastic, uh, a very slow acoustic uh, number uh, with an accordion solo. Between the Buttons, you find it on Backstreet, or you find Backstreet Girl, and then from the uh, the last two albums, a Beggars Banquet, uh, No Expectations. Uh, Brian Jones' last really solid contribution to the music, I think that slide and no expectations is just fantastic. And then from uh, from Let It Bleed, if you haven't heard Monkey Man, you should do it right now. Uh, that is song number five on my list. Jeff, to you.
1: Oh, Christ. Uh, okay, Rolling Stones number two. I'm going to agree with you. I don't care if it's not available on CD. You can blame Alan Klein and his son Jody Klein for that, but you can get it on Amazon. You can assemble it yourself. You can do a little research. You can figure out which songs belong on it, hear it. It's amazing. Uh, the other one is, you know, if I have to pick between Beggar's Banquet and Let It Bleed, I guess I'm going to pick Beggar's Banquet. Uh, not because I think it's necessarily not like hugely better than Let It Bleed. I think they're both co equal level albums, uh, but because I feel like it, it, <clears throat> it has a mood. It has that weird country blues mood. It's a darker and stranger record than the sort of almost self consciously epicness of Let It Bleed, uh, which make no mistake, I love too, because guess what happens when I go to my five favorite songs? A lot of songs from Let It Bleed feature on it. So what five would I pick? Well, I had six, so I'm going to have to be a jerk and uh, (laughs) remove one. Uh, I Am Waiting was one that I was going to use, but since Scott's already chosen it, I think a lot of people will already know to check it out and appreciate it. Instead, I'm going to start with 19th Nervous Breakdown. It's pretty late in the early Stones career. It's in their self-written singles era, not the blues rock stuff. But uh, if you just want to understand why the, the Stones were great, you know, hit-making singles artists in the mid-60s, well, you can do no better than that song. The second one I would go with is Who's Been Sleeping Here off of Between the Buttons, which is their their Bob Dillard parody, Loving Tribute, uh, and a, a song that, again, you want to explore the corners of the, of the Stones catalog during this era that you probably have never heard of. You can really do no better than the start there. Or... Alternately, you can start with the third song I'll mention, which is "The Lantern" off of their "Satanic Majesty's Request," a, a very weird, confused psychedelic album. This is a pretty psychedelic song, but again, it evokes a very strange and palpable mood—a uh, f- a feeling of, of loneliness and sort of isolation. That, uh, again, w- when, the, when, when the Stones get to those kinds of emotional places, it's it's uncommon. You know, they're usually more about you know you know you're kicking your butt uh with with incredible rock stuff and when they go into these contemplative moods it, it, it almost always works it, it, we'll talk about some of those in our next episode as well and it's really noteworthy uh fourth song i'll mention monkey man don't need to say anything more about it than i already said scott already said stuff too it's monkey man i'm just a monkey and all of my friends are music junkies <laughs> unfortunately that's not really true um, a lot of them are just lawyers and finally uh you can't always get what you want my fifth song uh perry mentioned it i'm happy to mention it it's one of the greatest and most iconic songs of the rock era and in fact for a very very long time if you had asked me what is the number one greatest rock song of all time i would have answered you can't always get what you want and maybe somewhere in my heart i still believe that to this day
0: the political beats look at the first section of the rolling stones career uh we thank our guest harry kachatrian you can find him at HarryKachatrian.com. daily wire contributor twitter at harry 1t6 <clears throat> harry thanks for joining us on this journey
2: thank you scott um, it was a pleasure being on the show yeah
0: and uh my partner jeff blair jeff we uh we now prepare for over <laughs> the... Over the, oh, the uh,
1: remaining 50 years. Yeah, right. yeah. we went crazy. through
0: seven. We just have to go through 50 years in the next episode. But uh, I think we're up to the uh, to the challenge, I suppose.
1: It's a good thing they didn't record any really good music during that period. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, at Esoteric CD, my name is Scott Bertram. I uh, find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. Subscribe to our feed for new episodes. iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, tune in. NationalReview.com. Listen and leave reviews for the episodes. You can also join the conversation at, uh, at political underscore beats for uh, Twitter as well. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats.